Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, folks. I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, Those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the Team House and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream as well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 174 of the Team House, a little off-kilter Tuesday episode. Um, Of course, we'll be back on Friday, but tonight we're here with our guest, Andrew Milburn. He's here for, uh, I believe, the third episode, your third appearance on the Team House. We really appreciate it, man. You're you're kind of bouncing in between here and Europe. Uh, You've been really, since the last, I, I was remarking before we started, the last, your last appearance on the show like six months ago or whatever it was, me and you were like joking, like, oh, Russia would never invade Ukraine. That would never happen. Uh, Well, yeah, we were pretty wrong on that one. (laughs) And um, you got directly involved, went over there and started the Mozart group. And I mean, before we'll we'll get like pretty in depth, but I mean, do you want to just start right off the bat telling people what the Mozart group is? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, by the way, very fond memories uh, of that last episode. Uh, I, I've tried to have it, have it removed from the internet. Turns out you cannot do that. No, I know no. it's just firmly embedded. The, the internet uh, is permanent. And, and I said maybe the last half an hour, but no. Yeah. Um, but there you go. Anyway, good. Thank you. <laughs> we contacted the chief yeah. of the internet for you, and, and he said no. The internet police. Yeah. 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 But anyway, I've been eclipsed by then by other uh, equally drunken behavior on your. Episode that, that, that encourages that, drunken behavior. That, that, that <laughs> and the press calling you a mercenary occasionally. I, exactly, I know. And not just the press, but the Atlantic. <laughs> no, I mean, serious, Jack, that's, that, that is pretty egregious. The I establishment. Mean, well, the it's Anglo-American not, establishment. It's not, yeah, it's not so much the establishment. It's <laughs> the fact that the Atlantic, New York Times, uh, you can say what you will about their, their politics or their, their slant, but... They make a thing that's justified about checking and fact-checking and double-checking. Um, and, and they've been, and the Washington Post, by the way, too, have been pretty good about firing people when, you know, it, it turns out that there's been things that are unethical, right? Or, or it's just negligent. Um, so I was disappointed that, the, I know I'm, I'm, you know, answering your question, but I'm disappointed that the Atlantic, Graham Wood, who who is supposed to be a, 
renowned, credible journalist, wrote an article calling me a foreign fighter, which was absolutely inaccurate. You, you and yes. Malcolm Nance, he lumped, lumped you guys together, said you were mercenaries, right? <laughs> yeah, it was, was it Malcolm Nance? Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, well, Sorry there you about go. that. Yeah. No, I mean, no, no, no. Well, I'm, I delighted. Mean... I'm delighted to be lumped up with Malcolm. <laughs> I, wish I, had, I wish I had his following, uh, but I don't, you know, so, Yeah. Yeah, essentially mercenaries, which is mad dog so, killers. So, to your to, sorry, getting back to your point. So, Jack, we convened here last time in January. Uh, we became unutterably drunk. We lost <laughs> you when you made a bathroom break, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and unfortunately, the only thing people remember is when we were comparing tattoos at the end, and I took up my shirt. Um, I asked you to remove that. Uh, my lawyers contacted you. Unfortunately, you figured out that I can't afford lawyers so uh, that, that came out yeah. actually we we received very sizable donations to keep the episode up <laughs> apparently there are a, a number of people out there that enjoy the eye candy quite a bit <laughs> release the Murphy cut <laughs> yeah of the Murphy cut yeah okay um, all right so anyway that's you but but your the one thing i love about show it's modulated so i <laughs> we, you know i mean intellectually modulated intellectually goes very rapidly up and down um so and yeah jack so soon after we had that episode <laughs> that sounds strange world war three uh, pops off yeah, yeah. Uh, so i yeah they, uh, sure enough the russians invaded kiev and I, like probably many others, thought it was foregone conclusion that Ukraine would fall, blah, 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 I would go out there. I'm writing, I write my four obligatory articles for task and purpose, and I want to issue an official apology to the edi editor, then editor, Paul Sroder, um, to whom I was very rude uh, because I got a form letter from task and purpose saying, since you are now... A mercenary. A mercenary. <laughs> it used terms along those lines, yeah. I don't think it says <laughs> soldier since of you're like, yeah, soldier yeah. of fortune. Yeah. Uh, killer for hire. Yeah. We cannot ethically be associated with you anymore. And uh, poor Paul, you know, I was upset with him because I felt I, I'm so naive and emotional, you know. Hey, you, you shouldn't have written me a form letter. You should have called me. Um, but Paul's a great human being, good journalist, and he, he, he brought me out there. Anyway. Fast forward, right? So we're in Kiev, and if you remember at the time, this was early March, and the Russians, no kidding, are on three sides of Kiev. It's so hard to imagine now. It seems surreal. But in Kiev itself, 20% of the population was left behind, and they were, everyone was preparing to defend the city. And so, you know, you, you read about, and it was true, in the West media that Zelensky said, everyone who wants an AK-47... Come and come and draw one. You know, if you between the 18th age of 1865, they're handing out all these weapons to guys who never handled a weapon before, right? Ammo, grenades. I'm not kidding you. It was surreal. And then um, some of the, uh, the, the the military guys there in Kiev, middle ranking, most uh, soft guys, there's three or four guys, said, "Okay, we've got to train." We, even if it's three or four days, because the Russians are approaching, they're on a time, it was a very tight time schedule. Um, but we've got to give them some training, right? And that's where they reached out to me. And um, I brought in, in short order, like two or three other guys, former Marines, Mossad guys from the States. We had a handful of guys in Ukraine, foreigners volunteering to help. We had very little time to kind of vet them, 
uh, we didn't really vet them to begin with. We were lucky we got some very good quality guys. You vet the guys who were doing the training? Or yeah, the yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's, we had that's the, a yeah, crapshoot, yeah. We it? had no time for leaky vetting of yeah. the dudes who were about to find the restaurants. So it, we broke them up into 120-man increments, five days training. We'd finish training, and they would jump in their cars, and they'd drive to the front. I'm not exaggerating. Up in a butcher. Um, and, and then, it, you know, the, they would come back a few days later for a fresher training. We'd pull them into classes to, to talk about what they'd learned in that time. And you got incredible stories from these guys. And there was no bravado. These were guys who'd been mostly students. And now they're like... Shell-shocked. Yeah. And they're like, holy shit. Yeah, you've got to get very close to the Russians. You know, remember the Vietnamese, you say... You know, they like hold on, get get in, hold close, it's and then classic, they can't. Classic guerrilla tactic. Yeah, like and, you're getting close and so to... the Ukrainians learn this too. You got to get in. Once you get in close with their infantry, they're shit. Mm -hmm. But if you if you're in range with their mortars or their artillery, they're really fucking good, and mm -hmm. it's devastating. You just gotta you you got to get in there. Um, and there's one kid. Um, he's like, yeah, I I never worked out how to shoot the AK-47. It's very confusing to me. So my lieutenant goes, here, here's a bag of grenades. Just, you work it like that. You pull the pin and just throw the grenade. And he's like. But stand over yeah, there when you do it. He was like, <laughs> and it was so awesome. These things are easy. I, mean, I swear to God, these are real conversations. And he's like, I can be the grenade thrower forever. And uh, we're like, no, well, dude, you know, hopefully the Russians aren't always going to be that close. Right, you know? <laughs> right, right. Um, so did you finally get them sorted on the AK? Yeah, yeah, he, you know, a lot of these guys uh, have carried weapons, uh, very few of them have fired them, and mm -hmm. the weapons manipulation is horrific, and mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, fast forward, that, that was Battle of Kiev, and I'm not saying we had an influence on the Battle of Kiev, but we did our best, and we probably saved lives, Ukrainian lives, and hopefully contributed to Russian deaths, um, but, but it was, a, you know, it's a short order process, and it was... You, you you couldn't make this shut up. I mean, we would we would go to a range because you have to. I suppose it's some kind of a Marine Corps ethos, right? Because I know Army basic they don't shoot their weapons. Basic. What? Come on, man. Don't no, no burn. Don't get, don't get defensive. You come all this way. To all right. Talk no, shit. no, 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 no. Anyway, I I'm I'm totally conflating things. Well, I'm talking about special operations components, the Marine special operations. Marsoc is the only component that during their selection. They, the, you, you have to, you, you rate it on marksmanship, okay? My, listen, we can get the Marines one thing here, right, David? That is the, a, a religious mm -hmm. observance of, of of marksmanship, right? Oh, there are um, many rifles. Yeah. Uh, this, this is my rifle. There are many yeah, rifles. yeah, yeah. It's, and, and every, like, that's the Marine Corps. Every yeah. Marine is a rifleman, and you spend your entire boot camp snapping in. Yeah. And, you know. But what yeah. comes with that? Is a genuine feeling right. among the Kutz bakers and candlestick makers that they are riflemen because right. at least once a year they go and, you know, I mean, infantrymen can disparage that. But bottom line is every Marine knows how to shoot, right? right? So that's kind of the ethos because along with that comes confidence and everything else. You right. know? So five days, what do you do? Well, you, they've got to be medically proficient in the sense they've got to know how to bring themselves back as best they can or and their buddy back from uh you know from the the for the edge and stabilize them long enough to get them to the ccp they've got to know how to shoot how to hit the target 
if they don't have a weapon that's zeroed, they may as well not carry the fucking weapon. I mean, it's you right. know, this is all stuff we know, but we're learning. They, so, so for they have to know how to move. They and but what's the biggest threat? Ninety nine percent of their casualties come from Russian artillery. So we, we're teaching them how to uh, provide overhead cover, how to dig a decent trench. Yes, this is perhaps passive stuff, but it keeps them alive. Right. That is their biggest threat. Right. <clears throat> what did that training look like? So if they all they all drew out AKs, everybody got an AK, um, did they get the ammunition to go for trauma tra- tra- uh, training? Did they – do you have goat labs? Do you uh, just they, No, 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 no. They uh, – they, they had some ammo, uh-huh. very little. Uh, what we required was 120 rounds to train with, and we got that always, at least 120 rounds. Um, for medical training, no. At that time, they didn't. They were short on everything. They were buying, buying their own equipment for IFAX. They had no, what we call, you know, squad. Yeah, I mean, you know, you were in the... Like a medic yeah, or a corpsman uh, or whatever? The, the squad or? medic uh, trauma kit. Okay, yeah, right? okay. Um, they still are short on those, by the way. Uh, but they were very short back then. They had shitty, the the um, the tourniquets that they were issued were shitty. They were Chinese made, and the the you know the window broke yeah. and every time you and they didn't have enough of them. Blah 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 blah. You know, no medical training. I mean, it was a, uh, a recipe for disaster. Is no other way of putting it. But they pulled it off, and they pulled it off in fairness. Uh, because they had just an indomitable determination that the Russians were not going to, you know, capture the capital. Um, they knew the terrain. They, you know, I mean, they had a lot of things on their side, right? And in fairness, the bar was pretty low on the Russian side, although not all Russian soldiers are shite. You know, there's a lot of the Ukrainian soldiers we work with tell a lot of stories about uh Russian infantrymen who they come across who are very good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they may do with whether they're called special forces or what. That uh, very good snipers. They're, they're encountering guys who are uh, who have been captured, but very good at resisting interrogation. Um, the the Russians, uh, the infantry is not that strong point. Russian army is is derelict. Yes, uh, but. Russian military capability is is still pretty significant. That's one thing that a lot of the, the think tanks are losing in the mix. It's like, it's binary, right? Russians are awesome. They're really scary. Oh, shit. No, now they're really fucking unscary. But it's somewhere in between. Right. Yeah, they're infantry, man-to-man right. are, are generally not good. But their artillery is really fucking good. <laughs> I mean, what, however uh, you look at it. How would these... So you get all these, you know, kids and, and civilians... You have three days when they when five. they or five days yeah, when yeah. they go to the front or when they go to meet the Russians, do they filter in? Do they get regular army like elements to lead them? Or are they just making it up as yeah. they go along? How did that work? Yeah, so that's a great question. It gets back to the debate in the Second World War, right? Between how casualties should be fed back into or casualty replacements fed back into the front line, and the Germans did it very well getting to a point here. So the Germans pulled back units and replenished those units with a cadre of the veterans. And they bring in, you know, new guys as a cohort. Yeah. But they would learn from the veterans and then they would go back as a unit. Whereas the Brits and the Americans, uh, the, the Americans called the Repel Depel, right? So they would 
they would feed onesies and twosies. A platoon would lose two or three guys. And two or three days later, they'd get the two or three guy replacements, but they were FNGs, right? There, right. Was, no, there was no sense, unless those guys survived beyond a certain point, there was no sense of loyalty towards them within the unit. Whereas if you do replacement, if you, can, if you do unit replacement, then you tell the cadre of guys, survivors, this is your responsibility. The unit depends it depends or dies based on your actions, and they take it upon themselves. So that is what the Ukrainians are doing, that, and, and it is proving very effective. So you see units that are taking 70%, 80% casualties, and that's no exaggeration, being pulled back, being replenished by new recruits. Uh, we'll take them through training, and then they go back to the front, and they, are, they do remarkably well. Um, morale-wise, and, and the cohesion, the way they look after each other. Don't get me wrong, the Ukrainian military has a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. They're uh, officer cadre, I mean, they're officer class, um, never really, never really embraced Western way of doing things. And you can, we, you know, again, Think Tank Land loved, loved this image of the Ukrainians adopting mission tactics. Oh my God! The Green Berets taught them the shit the last sixteen There's months. There's women like, fighting on the front oh, lines. Oh yeah, they yeah. like the resistance. Honestly, if you talk to tenth group guys, they're like, yeah, that, that's all bullshit. Um, and I can tell you, it's bullshit. The the what is not bullshit is the the courage and and the stories of these groups of individuals who fought the Russians and were experimenting with anti-tank guided missiles and turned out to be remarkably lucky and, you know, in, in the Russian columns were halted. But the story, the story is not about American uh, mentorship and preparation. It's the opposite of that. That's an interesting That's point a, of view. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's about the fact that they were citizen army. And interestingly enough, the mainstream Ukrainian army still shackled by its Soviet origins Interesting. kills mission command, kills small unit initiative. Yeah. But the fact that these guys hadn't been subjected to that yet. Yeah. They were civilians yeah. and they were they've been brought up in Western with the Western Europe approach and Ukrainians are remarkably tech savvy and they have this you know, every 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 nationality has kind of general characteristics. Ukrainians have this at times it's almost an annoying um uh, what's what's the word? Uh, insubordination, right? It's right. like, no, I can do this better. Blah 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 blah. Fuck you. Um, so it can work both ways. You get these. So you get Ukrainian civilians having to take on this role, knowing they're defending their families, perform better than professional soldiers. <laughs> That's perform really better than. I mean, seriously. You know, courage and everything. Yeah. I mean, I've heard U.S. and U.K. veterans say that time and again. It's just a they don't fucking give up and they are prepared to die and they learn quickly you know can you give us an example of how the uh, their leadership style or the officer cadre based on the soviet might be different the soviet model might be different than americans yeah certainly um so the problem is this so we look at the russians and the russians have a very low bar when it comes to mission command and we all understand that the supposed uh, reforms of the Russian army post-Georgia never fucking occurred, right? So, and the dregs of Russian society went into the army because everyone could buy their kid a way out of having to go into the military, right? Mm -hmm. There were so many other parts that if you went in the military, you were really, really fucked up. Mm -hmm. um, and I know 
from both of you, your experiences and background, you can relate to that particular statement. But, but subsequently, <laughs> you know, as you came in, you met people who were, you know, had better stature than you. Yeah. Um, Couldn't yeah. figure out why they were there. I know, a low bar. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I mean, the point is, uh, the Russian, I mean, the dregs when it went into society. So, all right, very low bar. On the Ukrainian side, and trust me, of course, my pro-Ukrainian credentials are, are uh, I mean, they're pristine, right? I would hope. But um, the Ukrainians have a problem with lack of mission command, with too much of the Soviet mentality within the military, even within the Special Operations Forces. They don't have a clear understanding of mission command. Um, the Estonian and Polish guys who worked with the Ukrainians longer and more and more closely than U.S. will say that's their biggest concern. Remember, the, you know, it's very interesting because the Poles have followed a, a, a similar evolution from, uh, you know, since fall of Soviet Union. The Poles were pulled into NATO. Mm -hmm. So right away they were getting this, yeah, we don't execute mission command well, but nevertheless we understand what it is. And so the Poles were getting hammered with that. The Ukrainians were not, and they struggle with it. And a lot of the foreign uh, soldiers who have come in, the volunteers, uh, Zelensky's legion, it was, it, it was managed poorly. They were sent to Ukrainian units as casualty replacements to begin with. You know, it was just a bad setup. Um, but, but my point is, too, they have legitimate complaints about leadership they fell under. You know, I heard some horror stories. Um, Zaporizhia, you know, was sitting in the lobby of a hotel. Jack, I may have already told you this story. Tell me to shut up if I have. But um, we, so we, yeah, in Zaporizhia, and uh, all these foreign guys come in, um, non-Ukrainians, Gringos, right? And they are. There's a few of them bandaged up. They look pretty beat up. Uh, and we start talking to them. You know, all good, good guys, Americans, Brits from the main group. There were some Finns, Scandinavians, and they had formed basically a company in the Azov. And they had been, over the previous four days, assigned the same mission, executed the same way, attacking a village without fire support. Um, and on the, you know, the very last time they found themselves out in the field under, in a field under Russian artillery fire, um, and they realized that they're, platoon commander just fucking doesn't have a clue so mm -hmm. they walk they're like we're done mm -hmm. and they can do that you know the ukraine's aren't going to go after that but it was uh talking to these guys there was no chest beating bravado there was no like there we were they were all pros very mature and they were disappointed mm -hmm. and shocked about what had happened you know you couldn't help feeling sorry for them they'd had a uh one of their guys a finn who uh, was very seriously wounded had been evacuated and they just felt kind of betrayed by the leadership but we've heard that story from ukrainian soldiers too so what i'm saying is that there is a lot of work to do now post-war in shaping the ukrainian military to 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 be a little more flexible it was, and it's the it was some of the press reports would make it sound like exactly as you described like this Western training and influence has like created a core of NCOs in Ukraine, yeah. and that's what's helping them win the war. You're saying that's pretty much nonsense. Yeah, it's absolute nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Um, you know, I called, I called Sokyo, friends in Sokyo, as I went back into Ukraine, and said, "Hey, 
I'm reading about this great resistance organization that Tank Group has set up. Can you put me in contact with them? I've got the very straight answer, Andy. That's total bullshit. I wish that was the case. So the Ukrainians did set up a resistance organization, um, but they didn't really have time to train them effectively and, you know, kind of dissipated uh, because their goals, their, their rationale dissipated as, as you, you know, the Russians started withdrawing from around Kiev. Um, the stuff the Ukrainians are doing, right, behind Russian lines, Behind Russian lines, in DNR. Yeah, um, in Crimea. Um, yeah, and and in in Russia itself, I would guess, and I don't have any great insights, but those I would say absolutely those are not U.S. supplied weapon systems. You know, those anything the U.S. supply. I mean, the the ranges don't apply anyway. But the U.S. put very very. Or NATO put stipulations on everything that provided uh, that they would not be used against Russian homeland. Russian homeland, not those areas necessarily that Putin has declared <laughs> within Crimea Russian, but the actual, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so deep strikes. Um, very possible that there are genuine special operations guys operating within Russia. There's an SSO patch right next to you there. Yeah, I, I, was, I was looking at that. Also likely... Um, not just likely, but we know cyber attacks, cyber, what the Ukrainians are doing in the cyber realm, I, U.S. Cyber Command will learn from, I am sure, and I'm sure it's very interested in doing. Yeah. Uh, they're doing um, extraordinary things that border on the kinetic, that are kinetic. You, uh, you mentioned like post-war. Do you see being over there, do you get a sense that the war may be winding down, that Russia is... On their last legs, or oh no, I don't. I I I I get the sense that you've got. Yeah, you know, this is going to be a very poor analogy, but you you know you've got this this global stage, right? And you've got two, um, you've got two boxers who are both exhausted, but they're both putting up a. A, a, a very determined show, right? right? So, uh, from the Russian side, uh, yes, they've gone to a high degree of mobilization. It's going to pure. It's going to prove quite ineffective, you know. It, it, as far as the announcement to fielding of actual uh, guys on the ground who are, um, who are, who are, you know, units of man trained and equipped, but. The point is, it doesn't necessarily matter for the Russians, all right? So you think about this. Did we all in Western think tank land get very wrapped up in military tactics? And we say, oh, my God, they, you know, why are they taking so... The, the Donbass is, is strategically unimportant to them. No, it's all important politically because Putin has said, that's all I need. Right. That's why we started the war. And if he can keep Donbass, and if he can keep that southern strip, he can declare victory, and the Russians will believe him. And and we're coming up to the G20, uh, the G20 summit, right? Sometime later this month, guarantee Putin's going to start looking at France and Germany, saying, "Oh, winter's approaching. You know, it's, things are going to be getting tough." Hey, listen, I'm I'm tired of the bloodshed. I want to negotiate these fucking crazy Ukrainians, though. 
insist they want to disembowel Crimea from, you know, our, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. You get it. So I think um, it's very easy to dismiss Putin as being insane. Uh, he's certainly, you know, I mean, we can't mirror image him. He doesn't. Right. You know, we can't I mean, profile yeah. him. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, there's a method to his madness. Mm -hmm. And strategically, he's not feeling as badly as we would like to think. Think about the countries of the world who are aligned or not aligned, or at least haven't condemned the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Over half. Yeah. Right? So, you know, we, we, we can stomp our feet and yell and scream, but it, it's almost as though Putin is very carefully excising the United States from the global, you know, global discussions. Yeah. Right? It's like you are no longer relevant. Yeah. And that's my, and that's where you'd have heard me be critical of U.S. foreign policy, and that's why I'm critical. It's not because I'm an angry person, although Jack may disagree. It's because I would like to see this country have a coherent foreign policy, right. you know, in the same way it did in the past. I mean, you think about how we tackled the whole problem of the Cold War, uh, the Marshall Plan combined with containment. I mean, there was a strategy, a policy. We just don't see that. We don't see. We yeah. don't, do we? I mean, well, I mean gravitas. I mean, we don't see that gravitas of understanding. But, but even during the Cold War, we still... That's not saying like, anything. He's like, fuck you, man. No, you know, but just, like even during the Cold War, we still had like Vietnam where... Like we still... We, we had maybe a guideline of a policy and a guideline of a plan, and this is what we're going to do. But even within that, you know, our, our foreign policy, and, you know, I think we've talked about this on the show before, one of the challenges is that it changes so frequently, not just with administrations, but sometimes within the same administration, yeah. that other countries don't know what to expect of us. Well, it's not clearly defined. Yeah. What is our policy in Ukraine? Are we all in? If we're all in, why aren't, why aren't we giving them attack arms at the Yang Yang? Right. Why aren't we giving them long-range precision-guided right. uh, drones, right. or at least enabling them to have them? Right. Well, and there are people who think that our whole strategy in Ukraine isn't to help Ukraine win. It's just to... Just bleed Russia. To bleed Russia. Yeah. And I have no problem with that. Um, I would just say that probably the most effective way to do that and still retain credibility is to give the Ukrainians better weapon systems yeah. and you get it over quicker. Yeah. And understanding that time does not benefit Western democracies, the global norms, time benefits Russia right. in this particular yeah. case because of the pool of energy, because of just uh, just being able to betray the fact that this is a war of attrition. Right. Do you, uh, do you feel as though Russia is getting, whether it's sympathy, I don't think it's sympathy, but there's enough utility with Russia. Now we're seeing Iran and we're seeing, you know, we're seeing pipelines into the country with weapons, drones, yeah. things like that. Do you think that there's going to start to be an escalation of arms as they get equipment equipped from outside also? It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Yeah, it's very interesting, actually, what the. Um reaching out to Iran, it was a natural partnership because the Shahed 136 is, it's made from civilian components, right? So, I mean, commercially available components. It's a very, it's a very unsophisticated weapon, but remarkably effective because it used in, you know, in, in groups. Um, what I'm saying is I'm agreeing that there's something to be concerned about here, that we can that Russia, Russia is still an adaptive society. It's an adaptive government, an adaptive uh, to to the extent that it knows how to survive, um, the, to to a level that we underestimate totally. Uh-huh. Right? I mean, they, there's there's no way, and and Putin has aligned himself with that administration. So I'm just saying, it's this is going to be a really tough problem. We, United States, probably cannot influence it. We can only, because as soon as we touch anything, it turns to shit in this regard. Mm-hmm. Um, we can only hope that the the uh, Russian army is increasingly becoming so angry. Mm-hmm. This is an FSB war. The FSB fucked up everything about this war, but it's the army that's paying. So when you know, one would hope that that is a black swan event. Some of it comes across as desperation, though. That they're, I mean, I understand like these U- Ukrainian drones are doing some real damage mm. in, in uh, I'm sorry, Iranian drones are doing yeah. some real damage in Ukraine. Um, supposedly, they're also having to get shells from North Korea. Yeah. Uh, there were reports early on in the war that they were recruiting Syrians to come and fight for them. I don't. Or think. Afghans, yeah. A- and now mm. Afghans, right? Afghan, where they're recruiting Afghan commanders. Yeah. It seems like this attempt of the Russian government to create like George Bush's coalition of the willing. Yeah. Like we, like the Dave Chappelle skit. We got the Zulu nations and you know all these That's kinds right. of people. But it comes across kind of like yeah, like like a lead balloon. Like I'm, I'm not sure this is going to work for Russia. It's a Potemkin coalition. Right. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm with you. And, but there, there are a lot of bad indicators. If you're a Russian right now, a lot of bad indicators, right? I mean, um, as near as you can get to public dissent now to the war among influential figures. Right. Interesting that Putin pulled in. I, oh God, I can't remember his name. Shabolkin, Shulkin. You know, the hardline mm-hmm. general to head up uh, the war. And you notice that kind of allayed criticism from for for a little bit we'll see my point is this though jack i agree with you 100 percent. but i think that russia has a, a just a, a an almost unfathomable ability to absorb punishment to suffer mm-hmm. yeah yeah mm-hmm. and it's like in their culture their ethos and right now putin has the slide it's a hermetically amazingly 21st century more of a hermetically sealed society than it was in in the, in the latter parts of the communist era, right? We were talking about yeah. that with uh, was it was it when Holden Triplett was here, or was it um, one of our other guests we had recently? Where I was talking, and I'm sure you've you've probably spoken to the people firsthand. 
some of these civilians in areas that the Ukrainians have liberated um, and taken back their territory, and the civilians talk about their interactions with Russian soldiers, and they're mm. saying things like, well, why are you upset with us? We're here to free you from Nazis. Like, like the, these soldiers, I think, yeah. they, they like whole ass believe the propaganda. Yeah. And that's kind of, um, that is kind of shocking in 2022 that you can have a society that yeah. has been so isolated in that totally believes the state propaganda. It, it is extraordinary, and it's even among some of the more educated members of, of Russian society. So you can perhaps understand soldiers being convinced of that, and the BBC does a really good job on their Ukraine cast of looking at kind of the, the ethos or, or feelings within Russia, yeah. especially families of soldiers, soldiers who are lost and this and that. It's very, it's very well done. But you're right. The bottom line is, yes, they genuinely believe that they are um, fighting Nazis. They are they are liberating people ethnically like them or historically, culturally like them mm -hmm. from a Nazi and corrupt like Some regime. of these more recent speeches Putin has given where he's talking about, you know, we can't let the transsexuals and the gay pride parades yeah. win and we're fighting Satanism. It's like... It's yeah, so. He's putting it all in. It's so. Yeah, it's so over the top. It's like it's hard for me to believe even like a Russian grandma with nothing but a Russian television set in her home, like can believe this. Jack, can you think? I mean, yeah, it's so hard to imagine any U.S. politician making a similar type speeches, you know, uh, <laughs> stirring up the masses and this populist bullshit. I mean. Bringing back manufacturing jobs, the Satanist uh, pedophile building, cabals, building a wall. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we do. We do yeah. have. You're right. I mean, we we do have that that vein in American politics today, which kind of which freaks me out. Also, um, it's very similar, though, isn't it? That's a scary thing. It's a similar yeah. uh, uh, emotion that's yeah. being tapped into. Yeah, and it relies on emotion. It relies too on a little bit of you know, honestly, lack of education. Um, I pause there because I know very sensibly educated people who have bought into this kind of populist right. mentality. Right. So um, maybe, you know, just the wrong sort of education. Not They haven't been through the Dave Park school of, um, of continuous, you know, ass rapery. No, nobody uh, yeah. wants to go through that <laughs> through school. That school. <laughs> I, I, I give scholarships out all the time and <laughs> I can't get anybody to attend. If, uh, if you read... Um uh, I interviewed him like a year ago, uh, Eric Curlander, who wrote that book, Hitler's Monsters. Yeah, yeah. About the um, Third Reich and the paranormal. And this guy's a historian, did tons of research. But Very I mean, like, Weimar Germany was like high society. These were highly educated people. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously they Very believe... Very cult, you know... They, they believe the fascist prop political yeah. propaganda, but quite a few of them believed, came to have, like, some pretty gnarly, bizarre beliefs in the paranormal as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's really interesting you bring that up because I'm such a geek. I uh, I read a book called They Use Dark Forces, um, uh, written by a guy named Dennis Wheatley about who was in uh, U British intelligence during the war, but after the war wrote this book about what they'd learned about the the Nazi experimentations with the occult. The occult and yeah. yeah. I mean, it's. Oh, I'd never heard of this. Yeah, it, this it's insane. I mean, I never heard of the book. It, yeah. It's like. Uh, Things like um, uh, they would, it sounds insane, but they, the ABVA, right, the uh, military intelligence uh, 
German military intelligence. We're trying to figure out a way to tap into the dreams of merchant marine, British merchant marine captains, right? They were like, if we can meet them on the astral plane, and we can, I mean, they were, seriously, I mean, they, they were trying, they were... The operationalization of the... Yeah, yeah. but I if mean, you read through how yeah, they were yeah. researching this, it wasn't so insane. They, you know, they were scientists involved. They in had a mythology. Yeah. To be fair, I would say that our own intelligence community has duplicated a lot of that research. In, yeah, you know, in their, in their own way. I mean, yeah. where where do we get the men who stare at goats? And you know, a lot of the you know a lot of the other projects that ran. That I mean, yes, yes, that existed. Uh, like the remote viewing program existed, yep. but. I, I mean, that was like a small program that they put like probably $10 million in because we thought we found out that the KGB was interested in it. Like it, it wasn't like something that was like mainstreamed into the military. No, it, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it was, but it was still funded and, yeah, yeah. and carried out. Yeah, by there was a, parts uh, of our government. Yeah, the men. That's right. There was a book that came it out. About Jim, that. It was Jim Shannon. Yeah. Um, who passed away about a very, year, uh, a year, very interesting. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so I, I mean, you, you can dismiss all of this, but on the other hand, there is, the, you know, there's a little bit of, the, there's a little bit of belief of truth in there, I think. And, uh, um, but it was, yeah, very, very interesting. The, the, the Germans looked at that um, seriously too. You know, uh, it's not surprising. I mean, it's the, there. There's, you know, there's something attractive about it, right? You, you have an entire culture like in India. You know, the mystics. Um, how many people believe in astrology? You know, you know what I mean? Like, there, that's, I mean, and then you go to a Boston Red Sox game and guys there haven't changed their underwear since the last time they went. That's, you know, you you know, know what that, I mean? That's, that's something Curlander brought up with me when I interviewed him. He's like, yeah, Jack, I mean, like, you say they're crazy, but it's not exactly good social science because if you go and talk to a, a mainstream Christian, they're going to tell you a story about this guy who died and then he came back to life right. and he, yeah. ro right. he rose up into the yeah. heavens. Right. Like, yeah. right. It, it's yeah. quote, quote unquote crazy, but that it's a it's a belief. It's right. a belief. It's, right. it's a powerful belief that has led to right. Uh, uh, I mean, massive I, geopolitical. Well, and and, and every religion, right? Every religion yeah. has. You wanna, you know, I'm good for now. Has a has a certain. Part? I'm probably going to have a piece of pizza, but uh, thanks. But has a certain amount of mythology around yeah. it. Um, it's the idea, especially like, you know, I mean, the idea, especially like now science and, and the world is so open, it's it's easier to like disbelief things in general. But especially imagine during the 40s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. Movement. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, you know, that there were mysteries. You yeah. Know? Um, What's the, I, the Salah? No, I know this is taking this to a level way beyond the team houses. Gone beyond. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're we're right. No, I mean, Look, we're going to break out the D and D the yeah. spell book here, the player's handbook, and <laughs> break out some right spells there. pretty soon. Neuroscience anyway. cannot explain everything. Right. So, in other words, you cannot explain all human emotions. You can't break them all down into the physical aspects. Or, I think we all cling on to that, right? Because if you don't believe in that, there's no beyond, right? Right. Jack's like, this is nothing to do <laughs> with you. My, so, no, I'll tell you what it is. My friend, yeah. who I, I introduced you to, uh, Bill the Greek, 
He's watching. Oh, Green, yeah. He, he's watching this show right now, live on his. He's watching the Andrew no. Milburn on his show. But anyway, next time Bill heads over there, you should you should use him for something. He's uh he's a good guy. I would love to meet you, Bill. It's a just a very catchy moniker to Bill, Bill the, the Greek. Greek. Yeah. My cousin. <laughs> You're all cousins, right? No. You go back far enough to <laughs> Sparta. So, uh, so what? Uh, this is going to be purely your opinion, and I know nobody knows. Nobody knows what Putin's going to do. Do you, or is there a sense amongst Americans or uh, Ukrainians, anybody, that that there is a nuclear threat on the rise? Yeah, certainly. I think the Ukrainians are particularly worried about that. Ukrainian public is worried about that. I would say that, I mean, you've you've read the intelligence analysis on that. That is not such a, a big threat. Um, yeah, so I don't, me personally, I don't worry about that. But I will, you know, I, I do, probably because like you, I'm institutionalized and I, I like to believe the comforting things like, hey, this is, this is an anthrax injection. Um, right. It's, it's for my own good. Yeah. It's going to bleed it's for five gonna days. It's going to help you in the long run. Right. Yeah. Right. It have no effect on your on your miserable sex life. Right. And, uh, <laughs> right. Right. It, it, and your ability to unsustain an erection has you cannot subsequently sue the U.S. government for. Right. Exactly. You know, for uh, for me, like I don't have like. I wouldn't really too. give it much of a thought. That's right. But then, you know, when Biden comes out and says we're on the verge of nuclear Armageddon and New York puts out, you know, public safety measures, then all of a sudden, are they, I'm wondering, are they reading something that I'm completely unaware no, of? No, I think we're playing in Putin's hands. You know, you're talking about a, uh, I, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying underestimate him. I'm not dismissing him. But I'm just saying that we cannot all walk on eggshells right. because the, right. we're worried about this or that there has we we have to have some faith in the fact that or no no let me avoid saying that let me say instead that if we keep tiptoeing around putin's red lines we we are in in the end it's can't let him we're hostage. empowering him right yeah, we're empowering right. him right we're, we're causing him to be more crazy and we're we're just setting a shitty example right to the world right right instead of saying hey fucker Enough Whatever, enough. Uh, yeah, right. yeah. By the way, we are going to do a no-fly zone here, and this and that. And what are you going to do about it? And by the way, yes, you can go to whatever. But I mean, the Russian nuclear arsenal is a—it's—it's it's obviously something to be worried about. Right. But we all know that, given given the ability to do first strike, preemptive strike on first indications, we can. So why not message that to Putin? Right. Hey, dude, you and I both know the rules of the game. Right, right. So if you listen yeah. to, uh, I can't remember the name of the guy, somebody on, our, on uh, the National Security Council, and he was doing an interview with, like, Meet the Press or something like that, and he was saying, like, the way he was making it sound was, uh, like, hey, I'm, we're, he said, we're not going to get into a public, like, tit-for-tat with the Russians. Like, if you do this, we'll do that. Yeah. But he was like, yes, we clearly communicated to them, if you take you know, actions, if you escalate to, uh, escalate to WMDs, this is what mm. we're going to do. And, I mean, they made it sound like, hey, if you drop on Kiev, we drop on St. Petersburg, yeah. like that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I don't know. That's speculation on my part, just yeah. based on what I what I heard. Yeah. You know, the problem is, I don't think, I mean, Putin won't trump on Kiev. He will 
if he is going to do something, he will do uh, nuclear detonation above the Black Sea. Yeah. You know, for, hey, a, for a massive EMP. Say, yeah. Which will still call fucking problems for the world. Right. But it is not as directly confrontational as right. something on a city. Yeah. Yeah, that that would create some ma massive problems for but, the world. So, you know, strategically, Putin does, he still, I mean, I won't say he holds the reins, but he, he is in a, he's in a more powerful seat than he should be. Yeah. Concerning I, how he is fucked up. Um, on the operational tactical level, things don't look good for either side. And that's why I say it's going to take a black swan event to cause a, a conclusive end of this war. In the next you mean a, a decisive victory for somebody? For somebody. But, uh, or, or, or um, which would be a decisive victory, Putin overthrow, right? Mm -hmm. um, but even then, the Russians would then, the Russians would have to concede fucking everything. You know, so who knows? I mean, whoever comes behind Putin, unlikely to do that. The Ukrainians are determined that no, no part of Ukrainian soil should be still within Russian control, to include Crimea. Right. That's what Zelensky said today. Yeah. Which makes it very, it makes it problematic from a number. You know, so even, one of the reasons, honestly, why um, annexation of Crimea was not such a big deal, it was a huge deal, but I mean, why it was not taken such a big deal is Crimea had been battered back and forth between Ukraine and Russia, you know, what well, was Russia then, the Soviet Union since the early 50s. And there was a lot of feeling, even among Ukrainians, that, hey, population's mostly Russian-speaking, what the fuck, you know, it doesn't really matter. But, um, of course, strategically, access to the Black Sea was a huge deal. Um, but now, but it doesn't matter, you know, prior to, prior to this last, you know, the kickoff in, in February, um, Ukrainians were reconciled to having lost Crimea and and most of Donbass. Now they are not. Right. They want it all back, and that's going to be problematic. Is, is there? Do you have a sense that? Obviously, Ukraine is the aggrieved party here, one hundred percent. There was no justification for what Russia did, but do you have a sense at all that Ukraine may potentially overplay their hand? You know, like yeah. No, I see what you're saying, Dave. I think, well, let me, um, let me backtrack for a moment. So, I, I this is really bad for a, a guest on a podcast to say, but I don't know how I feel about Ukrainian determination now to take back Donbass, Luhansk, I mean, all of Donetsk and Crimea. I, I support it. Mm -hmm. Um, I just don't know how practical it is. Right. You support the know. idea that uh, yeah, where yeah, it's I coming mean, from. I, yeah. Right. Um, and, and so the other part, uh, because it's a great question, Dave, is that the Ukrainians actually are undermining their own cause with their terrific propaganda. So their, uh, their information operations campaign was very effective at the strategic level. It's not a tactical level. It's shitty. They could take so much more advantage of Russian morale mm. by inducing surrenders. They yeah, don't yeah, yeah. do that. They don't do that. In fact, their mantra of hatred towards Russians is not helping them. They should reach out to the Russian soldiers, say, you want Ukrainian citizenship? You get right, your own right. fucking computer and a 
uh, an apartment in Odessa and, uh, you know, whatever. A washing machine. A washing machine, yeah. I know. It's, yeah. Washing machine. Yeah, I'll, say, I'll, I'll take them up the, on that. You can see the videos of them. Washing machines being loaded in tanks, you know, stealing like the kids' Disney sheets yeah. and shit like yeah. this. Yeah, um, but I mean, all of that said, I mean, the Ukrainians, inch by inch, are retaking territory, and I mean, some pretty stunning successes over the last, you know, month and a half or so. Yeah, I mean, I I would be cautious though, Jack, about calling them stunning successes. So well, they were they were unexpected from uh, at least on for a, me. No, one hundred percent. So, but. I, I, I'm agreeing with you. They they were. I'm not. I'm I'm not undermining the the success that happened. I'm just saying that you have to look forward to what did they lead to, and right. that's my concern. So, um, so they so let's look at the north. All right, uh, the Kharkiv breakthrough, six thousand square miles is what the Ukrainians claim. Mm. Could well be it's significant, but and 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 it was well done. Um, it was. The it, it was a uh, it was a result of initiative at brigade level. Mm-hmm. So three brigades broke through. They saw you know the, the Russians were on the ropes. The Russians were even signaling that they raised a fucking white flag by Izium train station. So it didn't take intelligence analysts to say, <laughs> right. okay, I think uh, guys, we can I see a gap, you know, and right. they, they are bailing out along the roads, and so the Ukrainians moved in. Um, and there was a lot preceding that, you know, uh, with high mile strikes and all that. But the Ukrainians moved forward, but they instantly were out of gas. I mean, not out of gas. Literally, they 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 didn't have uh, they didn't have the resources to right. exploit that. Right. They three brigades moved forward, and once they got through Izium, they took Lyman. They dug in because they couldn't exploit any, and that that I sadly is. I think what we're going to see on the Ukrainian side is you're going to see individual small unit actions seizing initiative, taking ground, but it's going to be very small and there's no means to exploit it because the, the Ukrainians don't have that. On the Russian side, um, I you know I get it. There's been that good news, but the good news is kind of over, right? In Kherson, by the way, Kherson, Kherson, um, a counteroffensive kicked off early September. Mm-hmm. It was October by the time the media started reporting, oh, they're making gains. 10, 20 kilometers, huge losses, both sides. This is not, these aren't stories of Guderian-type victories. Right. That the, you know, right. they are, it's a hard grind, and it's an indicator of what lies ahead. Right. Um, and so when I say Black Swan event, Russian side, someone overthrows Putin. Um, I think... From the U.S. side, if, all right, bear in mind I'm, I'm being unemotional here, if the U.S. government really seriously wants, number one, Ukrainian victory, number two, uh, serious depletion of, of uh, Russia, militarily, um, economically, uh, and in, you know, the, in public perception, then it behooves the United States to give Ukraine, really embrace the prospect of Ukrainian victory. Give them the intelligence they need. Give them the advice. Um, they don't have to put boots on the ground. Give them the uh, advising for a, a serious campaign plan. Um, 
but give you, them, you give them the low-range platforms. They're not. I mean, you don't feel that they're getting targeting intelligence from the United States. That they're oh, not. Oh, certainly, yeah. Yeah, that they're not. To some extent, we have troops in Poland, yeah. Romania. I mean, that they're not yeah, getting yeah. advice and. I I I think they are, Jack. I know they are, but not not as far as campaign planning. This isn't the fault of the United States. Um, alone, it's Ukrainians too, because right, Ukrainians right. are not being forward and saying, "Hey, here's what we plan to do. We could really use help and intel here, and what you suggest here." That dialogue is not taking place, mm. so it's not. I'm not simply blaming USG. Yeah, I, I get understand. It. It's, a, it's a partnership. Yeah, that has it's got to take gotta place. be a partnership, and but we on the US side have developed our partnership and understand that hardening the lines of NATO does not encourage the Ukrainians because they, they know where they lie on that other side of NATO. So, what, um, what, what hardware do you think we should be looking at giving to the Ukrainians? I mean, like I've, you know, tongue-in-cheek in the past said we should, if they want F-16s and Abrams M1A1 uh, tanks, we should give it to them. People have brought up, well, there's a lot of maintenance and upkeep and, and a yeah, lot of yeah. training curve. Um, like, yeah. like, it's not just about the hardware. It's also about the people and the joint arms. and all. It's about, you, it's about you know more the, about it than I do, Andrew. But it, no, you're right. It's about the culture, how they use stuff, right? So I've talked about this before. Artillery. They use artillery in a very centralized fashion. When they use it in a centralized manner, combined with their ability to collect intelligence, they do it quite effectively. But the problem with that is that is one phase and in an offensive operation, subsequently, you need to decentralize your use of artillery, right, as you're mm -hmm. moving. So, they, so the opening phase is, and it gets great Western media coverage, oh, my God, look what they've done with high miles, awesome, awesome, awesome. We see, we see the kill camera, like, every day. Yeah, awesome, awesome. But they can't follow that up by supporting units <laughs> right. as they cross the line. Right. Because they're not agile enough. There's no such thing as a forward observer. There's no such thing as close, close, fast. So, so they're not nearly as good at maneuver warfare as we no. would expect from looking no, at the no, video footage. No, 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 no. They, it was in, it, it, to to see the reports about in the West media about oh my God, they've mastered combined arms was absolutely horseshit. Um, again, what took what took uh, Kharkiv and environs and all that uh, was reading reading the tea leaves. Um, but there was no real combined arms. There was none. You know, we, we were there. I mean, it's not like I'm, a, I'm not pretending to be an expert covering everything, but I happened to be in Izium. Well, I happened to be on the... On the you were debriefing the guys as they came off the lines. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, you've, we've got to be honest. It was Russians moving out, we're moving in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, uh, do you think that the sort of the positive spin on the Ukrainian war effort is due to like a lack of knowledge of actual military operations and overestimating. I, I, I think it's, it's all good and well-intentioned, Dave, you know, I, but the problem is this, and, and I've got tremendous respect for what the media is doing. All right. For their mission. Of course, we've all had, we've all had problems with individual journalists. You know what I mean? Well, everybody has a problem yeah. with Jack. I mean, yeah. look at Jack. What a pain in the ass he is. That's <laughs> but Jack, no, I mean, I think Jack would I'm applaud this. I'm so proud this. to hear that. No, I mean, no, I mean, I think Jack would applaud this statement is that um, you, you've got to be a pain in the ass to be a journalist. You've got to really question, question, question. You should be pissing off military people. Uh, and 
I'm not getting the sense that it's happening in Ukraine because journalists are not allowed near the front line. So the, the Ukrainians control that. And some of the problems I've seen in um, where journalists are questioning people, the Ukrainians, I think perhaps they're a little too, they're not aggressive enough, you know. Does that make sense? Yeah, yes. there, yeah there's I mean, a lot of a lot of lightweight reporting, I yeah. think, and, and and so they're not getting personal perception on the front line. Not their fault. They're accepting the Ukrainian government's version of what's happening on the front line, and they're not being very. It, it's weird, challenging. It's weird because it's such a total spin of how they cover the U.S. at war. Yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, in terms of it doesn't matter if it's on the front line, they'll make up the story sometimes. But yeah. But uh, but. They they they're willing to be critical of of U.S. efforts and yeah. what the U.S. is doing, but here it seems almost as if it's taboo to yeah, say anything yeah, negative yeah. about. And, and I think I think yeah, and it's 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 hurting, and it it's about they need to be more critical about Ukrainian control of information because Ukrainian control of information is undermining themselves. Yeah. You just have to look at their press reports now. They're almost Soviet. And they're, right. You know, it's like, hey, dudes, you have a good story to tell. Don't fucking overdo it and don't bastardize it or, or dilute it with bullshit, it, right? Don't right. justify it, violations of law of armed conflict. Right. Um, There's a lot of bandwagoning. And, um, you know, when you see, like, the mainstream press reporting on, like, you know, the the social media phenomena of people making their avatars the little dogs and, you know, the FAFO people and stuff. Like, you're seeing these, like, stories like this. It's like, this isn't exactly hard-hitting reporting you guys are doing here. Um, and I, I won't get into details, but, I mean, I've, I've encountered some of it myself in my writing that I get the sense that there are a lot of people who don't want to rock the boat, even if it's a even if it's a story that points to good things, mm -hmm. successful things that uh, certain entities might be involved in. That there, uh, I, I feel like there's a reluctance to step outside a very narrow left and right limits yeah. of um, of a certain type of reporting. Yeah, and and it hurts us because it produces a very unimaginative approach. So even among, <laughs> strangely enough, DOD, right? You know, so you think about, and this isn't me putting a plug-in for the Mozart group, but we are doing essentially two things. We're doing, we're training Ukrainian military units, right, near the front line. And we're, we're looking all the time for what are the things that only we do, only we can do, that separates us from other volunteer organizations. And training Ukrainian units near the front line, giving them a very short course because we are constrained by time. But in that course, they will get the maximum benefit. So that's what I think is our, our niche as far as training. And by the way, we're doing this within artillery range of the Russians. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's, I'm not overplaying the risk. I'm just saying there is a risk and, you know, we are, we're, we're happy to accept it because yeah. we understand the payoff. You know, Andy, I w we want to talk about the Mozart group, but before we do that, we actually, I want to talk about you a little bit because... Oh, let me just talk very quickly. Yes, please. And I love where you're going with this. <laughs> uh, um, the second, so the second thing we do is humanitarian assistance. Okay. And I want everyone to understand that. So by that, I mean, we are, where our niche is, we cover the, 
the last few miles from the last covered, covered and concealed position outside Russian artillery range. We go not just within Russian artillery range, but into direct fire range to take civilians out of areas under bombardment. And I will say, honestly, we're the only non-government organization, only organization that is doing that right now. Um, and that's not a criticism of anyone else. We all understand the risk calculus. Um, and, and these other organizations have been hugely supportive for us. But we all understand that we are, Mozart Group is the, the group that goes, the, they, the movie that's going to come out, don't laugh, the movie is going to be called The Mozart Mile because it's about that last mile when you go, it's more than one mile, but the Mozart Mile sounds It's, it's better. better. It, yeah. I mean, you can't call it the Mozart several kilometers. Yeah, more. yeah. Um, the Mozart, you know, 7,500. Yeah, over the, the, <laughs> Mozart, or, the Mozart yeah. over that hill there. Yeah. Anyway. Um, how hard is it for you? Okay, before we get into just how awesome you are, uh, how hard is it for you guys? Hey, that's then, a good theme, though. I like that topic. How hard is it for you recruiting for the Mozart Group then to screen out the guys who want to get some? Yeah. <laughs> Dave, again, thank you for that great question. And I want to add that Dave has no prior affiliation with me or the Mozart Group, <laughs> and has no received any has not received any funding before this. Which I'm, uh, you know, yeah, I know. But it's very away. I know. Give, yeah. give your Venmo. <laughs> you know, <laughs> for David, the funding is in shots. It's very simple. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. So, bottom line is this: that from the start, we have paid very close attention to who we bring on board, and that has benefited benefited us. I just I've had two drinks benefited us you've had more than two Andy. oh three come on <laughs> let's be serious my shirt's still on um <laughs> more true. more than you know more than we realize it really has um it, i so second hand i heard from a friend of mine who spoke to eric prince and you know about the the growth and of blackwater and um and you know, Eric Prince, if you're listening to this and you didn't say this, my apologies. I'm exempt from you suing me. But uh, apparently he said, hey, listen, one thing I wish I'd paid more attention to was recruiting. Because we were military guys in the business mm -hmm. world. So we were thinking we got to think about business models. We got to instead of what we knew best, which was people. Mm -hmm. And we lost track of that. And we brought in the wrong people. And it had, it had strategic adverse results on the organizing institution or right. they grew yeah. so fast yeah yeah yeah, um, I mean, yeah. and so we uh we we have paid rather than business models and everything else we have paid huge attention to who we bring in and are very quick to cut loose people who we feel are, are not right and and it's you know what is right i mean it's you know, you could, both you guys know because you've been through selection systems. You can have the most incredibly selective system and still get people come through who are, who 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 really aren't right for the job, right? Right. Right. Um, and we understand that. So the people we bring in are either it's very unscientific. We either know them or there's you know uh, two degrees separation. Someone that we know. Right. Uh, and that has worked. That has worked a good. The, the last time I talked to you, I think you were also saying you were more looking for, like, gentlemen of your age that have gray in their hair. You're not looking necessarily yeah. for a 22-year-old. 
uh, you know, looking to get some, as Dave points out. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't go to the extremes of, you know, my age, but for the most part, <laughs> no, I mean, most part, the guys we have, you know, so our demographic is probably a guy in his mid-30s, mm -hmm. um, typically special operations, but not necessarily. We've got, you know, some, for instance, Brits who are conventional guys. Um, and, and you look a little bit deeper, they've, they've often, you know, they've done well in the civilian world too. They, they're not here because they failed somewhere. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, very wide. Yeah, uh, eleven different countries, but but the demographic wow. of the guy is quite similar. Yeah, I I, it's, uh, I imagine overachiever, but believer. He believes in something. He wants. He's he's perhaps a little disgruntled about his experiences in Afghanistan, right, or Iraq. You know, um, I, I imagine also just coming out, having come out of a twenty-year war that it's beneficial to have guys that are already blooded. So they're not necessarily like looking for that because yeah, that's an attractor. If that, no, if, you're, you're, it, you're right, Dave. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. So having guys, so generally speaking, the guys that we have are, um, they're very cautious, mm -hmm. but, but it's not overly, it, it's difficult to describe. What I meant is they're not, the reckless dudes, we right. have to do things that are very high risk. But what I meant by very cautious is they have a very good feel uh, for what's going on. And we all respond to the instincts of anyone in the team. Mm -hmm. So if anyone's like, guys, we need to fucking get out of here and have a good feeling, we get out mm -hmm. and then we'll talk about it afterwards, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, but I don't, we don't, nine times out of 10, people's instincts have proven to be, to be right because mm -hmm. without getting too paranoid, I mean, you, it's a very, it's a different, you know, we talked about, yeah, you need guys who've had combat experience, but the combat experience we're experiencing is very different. It's, <laughs> I mean, you, you know, I went through the battle of Fallujah. Uh, so that was, that was probably the most intense experience that Marines had, for instance, in Iraq, mm -hmm. because you are, once you're in that building, you're on equal terms with the dudes. Actually, you're at a disadvantage to the guys defending that building. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter what country you come from, how many resources you have on the side. It is now man against man, and they outnumber you, and you're in the dark, mm -hmm. and you don't have MVGs. And, you know, so that was a very formative, scary experience for me. But I can tell you, too, the brief periods have been under Russian artillery fire where you can hear the whistling of the shells coming down. That was a formative experience. And these are not nice formative experiences. Right, right, you know? right. These are formative experiences I would rather avoid. Right. But right. my point is that, um, so I had quite a, I think I had a fairly high bar about combat. You know, there's a lot of, you know how it is. I mean, we deal with a certain time that people, you know, I was in combat for 15 months. Um, but I don't get involved in those conversations. But I would argue that in Ukraine, the level, that intensity is like nothing that I've experienced. I mean, twice now I've been buzzed. I say buzzed because I don't know if the guy was firing rockets or not. I think he was uh, both times, but I've uh, been buzzed by an SU-25, um, like flying low, releasing mm -hmm. shit, flares and rockets. Um, and that is, that is gut-churningly... That is a formative, life-changing experience. It's, it's hard, I think, for an American, especially with combat experience, to imagine being on the other side of air power. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Because it was always on our side. Yeah. 
it's a very it's very humbling and it's not just the uh the jets it's drones all the time you know so we uh, as we go into these places uh we want the sky we want it to be raining right <laughs> like, you know and, and we never thought about that before normally right. you're like hey we yeah. want good right now, now right. we want it to be raining and we're always looking in the sky when it's clear for, for drones. So you, because, you find yourself waiting for the bad weather to move in, and then you're like, okay, we go. Well, we don't have that luxury because we respond to requests. Uh -huh. So uh, every day we will have requests, and we respond to them that day because often they're very time sensitive. Um, and if the weather suits, it suits, but most often it does not, and it's very clear. And And from the time... They, you know you've been spotted by drones, you know you've got two, three minutes before artillery rounds start landing. They are, so that's my point about underestimating the Russians. You know, they, yeah, their infantry is shite. We can, we can ballyhoo all we want about that, although we didn't do anything about that. But they are very good with artillery. And yeah. it's, it's particularly scary. And um, I think, you know, the units that we've spoken to that are, showing most signs probably of what we call battle fatigue. Mm -hmm. uh, it's all artillery. I mean, yeah. it's... How, what about the Russian uh, EW capabilities? Are you finding, uh, it, are you finding an electronic warfare yeah. environment out there? Yeah, they're very good. At, uh, I'm, not, I'm not an electronic warfare expert, but they, I can say this, that they barrage jam everything, yeah. and they do it very effectively. So... You in, know, I, in like encrypted comms? Um, well, no one's using encrypted comms on <laughs> the Ukrainian <laughs> side, so it's hard to <laughs> okay, tell. Okay, so that's better. Yeah, no, but they are jamming fucking our everything, our radios, our... UHF and everything yeah. else. Is... Um, and so it is a very extensive branch jamming, and I've heard that they can switch very quickly to point jamming, for mm -hmm. instance, so drones to bring them down. So they are very... They've become effective at that, mm -hmm. certainly. You know. How about um, cell phone and sat phones? They, they have not exploited, neither side has exploited signals intelligence to, I think, fullest tactical capability. I, I mean, I could be wrong. I know that at higher level within the Ukrainian command, they are targeting using signals intelligence, right, obviously. Right, right. But that capability does not exist at the at the tactical level in the trenches the, yeah brigade battalion level which is a shame because yeah both sides are very very sloppy in the use right. of cell phones right um real quick uh for the people who have not had the privilege of meeting you before and seeing your other shows and you should definitely go watch them um i'm by my book uh, we're going to talk about your book, book uh, because your book is absolutely phenomenal. I, it was it was honestly one of the best uh, nonfiction books I've ever read, um, and I'll tell you why in a second. Um, but you have a kind of a strange accent. Is that Tennessee? Very close. Yeah. Uh, can you? Yeah, can you... yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, my uh, so I grew up in the UK. Okay. And I didn't come to the United States, so I went to boot camp, Paris Island. I was twenty four years old. I'm swallowing up out of emotional, though that was a very emotional experience, nor because I've drunk too much, but simply because I think you watered down your, uh, your whiskey. Oh, and, uh, well, come here. <laughs> well, sorry about um, that. No, 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 Dave. Uh, I, was, I, was I think those were fighting words, right? No, I didn't. A, why that's not? like a duel at 20 no. yards or 20 paces. 
I'm not suggesting you water down your whiskey. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I was actually, it's quite kind of interesting. Uh, not because I was involved in it, but back then there were, there were armed forces recruiters in London who were, you know, whose purview were all the high school kids throughout Europe, all the U.S. high school kids. For, yeah. for American armed forces or no, for yeah, British? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So the guy I ran into was a, uh, a Brit who had joined the U.S. military, joined the Marines, uh, because he knew a draft. So this is extraordinary. His family moves to um, his kind of a boring story. I'll make it very short. No, please. Not that boring. Anyway, so his father works for Boeing, right? Uh-huh. He's a Brit. They go to Washington State uh-huh. in the 60s. They register, you know, apply for green cards. Um, he gets a draft notice when he turns 18 before he gets, you know, his green card. So he enlists in the Marine Corps because someone ill-advisedly told him, hey, you should join the Marines. Because it's cool, and right? Not, right, you know, and not be drafted into the army. So he did, um, and went and did three tours in Vietnam. Blah blah blah. You know, reaches E nine, master gunnery sergeant, goes back to the UK on his twilight tour as a recruiter. Still doesn't have U.S. citizenship. I'm like, <laughs> how did you fuck that one up? <laughs> so you're just gonna pretend this whole affiliation with the United States didn't happen. Now you're going to go back in the UK and just settle down. It's like, oh, maybe I should. Anyway. So why did you pick uh, the Marine Corps instead of, like, uh, a British? Yeah. Uh, why? No, I, I, I selected the British Army. I, yeah, they turned me down. I broke my leg playing rugby at college, mm-hmm. and um, it was a bad break, and the British Army basically said, you know, go away. You are... You are medically, physically totally unqualified. And my leg only bends 90 degrees even now, which technically disqualifies me from the U.S. military too. But it's really how you use it, right? You know, That's I mean, what they say. Yeah. I know, I've heard Jack talk about this um, in reference to a small penis. But the point is that... <laughs> if you don't use it, you lose it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, but it's what, I mean, it's how you... Yeah, how you, you adapt. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So so you joined the Marine Corps. Can you give us sort of a um, like a brief career history in the Marine Corps? Because it's, it's a, you had a fascinating career. Yeah. Okay, so I'll give you like 30-second version. Uh, so I went in as a private, um, which is... I don't regret, actually. Um, reached the dizzy heights of Corporal. Ooh. You may laugh, but Corporal was the hardest rank. No, I rank. do. I know. Corporal was the hardest rank I ever held. <laughs> and I was hanging on by my fingernails. <laughs> and then I uh, got a commission. Um, was fortunate enough or unfortunate enough to be in the 1st Battalion to land in Somalia, which is a big deal back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, you know, went through the stations of the cross and the Marine Infantry Officer, Company Command, blah, blah, blah. Um, seventh Marines during the invasion of Iraq, Battalion Commander in Karma, which is a dreadful, dreadful place. Uh, and then and then when I became a colonel, the Marine Corps promotion system broke down, transitioned to, uh, for command, I went to the Marine Special Operations Command to take over the regiment, which seemed like an extraordinary choice at the time. But I think it was because in my past, I'd done stuff overseas. <laughs> you know, this time. 
you know how the Marine Corps is. It's like we don't trust anything that is different. Right. Uh, so we'll put some of our weirdo guys Right. There. It's a punishment. Yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> they'll see how it works out. So, but I loved it. Yeah, I loved uh, the Marine. I loved having the regiment. Um, then uh, commanded the first Marine-led Special Operations Task Force that happened to be in the counter-ISIS fight in Iraq 2016. Um and then retired out of Soxant three day three years later. Went from private to colonel in the Marine Corps, which is no uh, easy feat. Yeah, I did. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you. And I didn't think about that. <laughs> uh, and then you uh, you wrote this book when the tempest gathers. And you can yeah. you, can you tell us that uh, where the title comes from? Yeah, it's it's actually I was struggling for a title, um, and then uh, someone sent me the the. That poem. Mm -hmm. um, Is that a Kipling poem? No, it's not. No, it's uh, Holland, right? <laughs> He's going to call me on it now. No, I'm not no. going to call you on it because no, obviously, no. obviously, uh, like, uh, and it's an American actually. And, yeah, uh, but he wrote basically wrote a uh, poem saying, you know, that there are there is a. Essentially, it's about such what a small percentage of the population actually when things when everything collapses are the dudes who are, you know, in in the front line basically. So, um, so the four stanzas you have in it's Holland, like you said, yeah. uh, is give us men. Thank you, thank you for that. Uh, it's all you. It's yeah. that. Is that uh, now the first line says give us men? Yeah, which you've which you, is a navy yeah. phrase. Yeah, but men. <laughs> Men who, when the tempest gathers, grasp the standards of their fathers in the thickest fight. And one of the things that I really loved about your book is because you were in a leadership position through a lot of this. And a lot of this was, a lot of the book wasn't just about your experiences, but about the, your internal landscape through those experiences, about your doubts, about leadership, about am I making the right calls? You know, it even if you're not a person who enjoys reading military history or or autobiographies about military subjects, it's a very human journey because there were a lot of other things yeah, going on yeah, in your yeah. life at the time and, and how those integrate. It's a very, very human journey that um, I just thought was incredibly like insightful and well, vulnerable. You know, no, thanks for that. When, when I sat down to write it, I... Uh, I had a discussion with a good friend of mine, Worth Parker, uh, who's a Marine. Uh, He's been on the show before. Has he? Yeah. yeah. It's super guy. Um, Marine uh, recon, uh, special operations guy, but a uh, great writer and just a, uh, just a good all-rounder. Uh, and, you know, his point was, hey, Andy, do you want to write a book that is touted by the Marine Corps Association as this is a great compilation of lessons learned. Right, right. Or, or do you want to write a book that dudes read that they can relate to because they've been through some shitty times? Right. You know? Um, and he was right. And uh, so that's why I came out in the book and wrote about a lot of struggles I'd had. Um, I'm cautious about using the term PTSD. You know, my father, who was a second world veteran, would laugh at that. But certainly no one goes through, no thinking, generally sensitive human being goes through combat and remains unchanged, right? Right, right. Um, so I want to write about that change, in, in my case, without being maudlin or, right. you know. Um, but it's important to recognize that change. Yeah. Um, and, and understand it and not lose, not lose track.
Um, so yeah, so I tried to combine it. I, it's a difficult task when you're writing about yourself and, and you don't want to write just about what you see in front of you. You want to write a little bit about what you know is going on above you. Um, and then integrating the part about the, you know, the human piece, as you know, I mean, I so saw some, not just combat stress, but right. human, I mean, tragedies within my family and right. stuff like that. Right. And the same, uh, guidance from my editor when I was writing my book and she kept coming back to me and saying like, okay, Jack, but like, what were you thinking? What were you feeling as this happened? Yeah. Because I had also had this tendency yeah. to write like. Like in a very sort of like clinical sort of way, like yeah. this is how the battle unfolded, and this is what 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 happened, and this guy did this, and that guy did that, and the vehicles moved over there, and she kind of had to tease that part out. Like, it's not easy, is it? Writing no, about no. your own, you right? Know, um, because it's a balance. Because you don't want to inject too many of your own emotions. Some things you just wanted to describe and let the reader right right inject their emotions, right? Um, and you can't constantly be saying, my heart was beating right. viscerally against my chest, you know. I felt a surge of adrenaline as, as I watched the 45 caliber round tear through my opponent's leg. And, you, and, you know, and there are books like that, and they're, and they're great. You know, they're, yeah. they're great, and you know, they, they do the job of what I think the author mm -hmm. wants to do, which is to convey that experience. Catharsis. But, but I feel as though it, it's... Are you looking for any? No, I'm, I'm just... Last time I was here, Dave drank all my whiskeys, so I just want to make sure. I that's that's yours. This is mine, yeah. Sorry. Are you sure? It's not watered yeah. down. Yeah. <laughs> it's not watered down. Um, it, it's, you know, a, a book like that is, is great for the intent of the author and what they want to convey, but uh, it's like both of you said, because, Jack, in your book, too, like you express your doubts about things and, sure. and how you felt, and... Not only are you being vulnerable, which doesn't, I think, come naturally to a lot of people, um, but you're doing it permanently. You are putting it in black and white. It's going out on the shelves. Yeah, it will yeah. be forever be out there, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, where you can't just go, uh, was that, I was drunk last night. Did I say something? Uh, what did I say? I don't even remember what I how, said. How long did it take you to write your book? Less than a year. No. But Dave, why haven't you written a book yet? Oh, nobody wants to read about anything I did. No, absolutely, you're I th wrong. I think part of it also is you see some of the controversies with uh, some of these other books, and if there was any flack to be caught, you know, I wanted it to be on me and not, like, on my teammates. So mm -hmm. I was like, kind of hesitant also to, like, expound on some things that, like, maybe would make one of the other guys look bad or he'd feel ashamed of something when really he shouldn't at all. Um, it's just, a, I don't know, that's a really like sort of, as you know, you've been in combat with other soldiers or other Marines yeah. and it's a very, it's a very difficult, very emotional experience for everyone involved. And it's not that I want to whitewash war or combat or anything, but I, I was, I was a little careful about yeah. how I wrote about you other people's be. experiences. Yeah, you, you have to be. Yeah. And, and that's why I tried to portray in the book that, Hey, this is, you know, I, I talked about one experience in Fallujah where I see two guys killed in front of me, the two Marines, as they open a gate and they're killed. And um, I've, I've met four or five guys since then who are on the same street at the same time, and our memories are all slightly different. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and the cool thing, though, when I wrote about the experience in the book, um, the guys who chimed in were like, hey, for the most part, I, I remember that. 
and you know i i but we every one of them none of them said hey no this is what totally happened wrong. everyone yeah. was like yeah oh wow he yeah that was a really i i don't i you know i accept that that i was so scared at the time that i probably got but this is what i remember yeah you know? i i remember those things like that coming out in hot washes you know and ars is yeah i moved this way and i shot the guy on the you know on the corner of this house yeah. it's like you weren't on that side of the house it's like yeah I, yeah, I mean, you know, adrenaline does funny things yeah. to the mind, right? It I, really does. It's, I remember when I, when I wrote the book, and I um, there were portions of it that were about some of my teammates, and I showed it to them. Like, mm. is this how you remember it? Like, what what's your input? What do you think? And um, there were certain times where I had not not like huge discrepancies, but I like I remember my guys saying things that they have no memory of. Yeah, they're like, I I I didn't say that. I don't remember. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. And, and, and I I don't think they're lying or anything no. like that. I think, like you said, the adrenaline's pumping yeah. really high. You're in an and you have to, moment. you have to understand that you are capable too. Absolutely, yeah. You know, of, uh, it's possible. Of that. I got that's, something off. That's why that was one of my struggles in the book. Um, there was another episode in there where I remember very clearly. You know, it's well, obviously, I, I don't know. Driving up to Diala River and watching the bridge uh, across the Diala River blow up in our faces. But the guy I am with, uh, Jeff Eby, good friend of mine, is like, no, man, that didn't happen. It, you know, it, it happened the next morning or whatever while we were asleep. And uh, it's so strange. It's, yeah. Um, and he said, I, and it, it wasn't someone blowing it up. I think it was, it was a cumulative effect of airstrikes. It just collapsed. Yeah. Um, but my memory is so distinct. I'm like, right. Jeff, how can you? We were just fucking sitting side by side. But then you factor in the fact we we're both very tired, been up all night. Uh, we we're both scared, you know. I mean, it's early days of OIF, uh, and and so I understand. But I, so when I, how do you write about that? Yeah. I say, hey, this is what I remember, but right, right. I've got to remember, but it, you know, I wanted to say, but just to show how different other people, you know, yeah. view it. And uh, and no one, I've got to tell you, no one. Uh, I mean, I, I I got people attack me for the book because of you know attack whatever. you for the book. Yeah, yeah. But no one has challenged my version of events, and I think I I think it's because I was trying to be in every case where I'm like, this is how I remember, but this is how other people saw it. And I say again, this is essentially what combat's like. No one fucking <laughs> if anyone has certainty afterwards about what happened. Yeah. They are. They don't understand what just happened. Yeah, you know? that's a very honest way to write a book, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and honestly, that's probably the reason why I would never write a biography is that m my memory is so shot about like so many like just because of the TBIs and stuff like that. Like, I would have to ask the people, not just in combat. I mean, yeah. going all the way back to like the Navy, you know, and the Marine yeah. Corps. Like, I would have to ask people, like, what do you remember? Because I barely yeah. remember anything. Well, I wrote a lot of, you know, I, I wrote in the evenings, I wrote a journal that really helped me. And I, I don't, I can't understand why I started writing. I think I wrote it to clear my thoughts. You, you said know. You, you, you wrote this book in like a month? Uh, three months. Yeah. 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 But I was writing, um, it was very cathartic. Yeah. I mean, you remember this, you know. Yeah. So yeah. you set yourself a goal, 2,000 words a day. And then you find often that you exceed that. 
Um, and then, but the real writing is editing afterwards, yeah. right? You go back. So I tried to follow, I tried to follow the advice of just write. Don't think about. That's true. Yeah. But, but it's very difficult. Because it to paralyzes do. people. Yeah. So you just write, you pull your thoughts down and then you go back and edit it and just accept, accept the fact that you suck first time around, but. When when you left the Marine Corps, so you left the Marine Corps, and now, uh, you know, now you're doing this amazing thing in Ukraine. What were the intermittent years like for you? Um, generally, they sucked, actually, except for the Team House podcast. And when, uh, when we were getting drunk in Washington D.C., that was fun. It was. It, it's not that that it sucked, Dave. It, it was the fact that, and. Don't get me wrong. I left the military very happy to leave. I loved my time in the Marine Corps. I did not embrace my rank. I didn't want to take my rank with me. Um, but but honestly, the uh, yeah, just like for a lot of us, the intervening years between uh, getting out in Ukraine were not easy. I was a contractor, um, and it's not that it's not that I don't like being the bottom of the pyramid. Again, I kind of relish that. But the problem is too that you start getting frustrated about all the things you saw in the military that sucked. And now you totally cannot fucking change them because right. you're a contractor, right? you know, and, and you, you're all, you're at the behest of people who are basically bad officers, you yeah. know? And so that was frustrating for me. I yeah. was like, fuck man, I got away from the military because I found it frustrating even as a colonel to get shit done. Now I'm a contractor. I'm below some major who's an idiot. And now he's, <laughs> um, it, it was good money, but it was not, there was no real sense of purpose. Right. I yeah. just felt I was sucked into the bureaucracy again. Uh, and then, you know, now with Ukraine, I, yeah, I, I feel hundred percent differently. I feel again, sense of purpose more so perhaps, Definitely than when I was in the military. And it's not just because I'm not, you know, I, I'm not, everyone says, oh, you're learning Ukrainian. I'm like, no. And part of it is because I'm abhorrently, you know, lazy when it comes to languages. I learn, I know French, I know Spanish, and that's, that's about my field. I'm not going to be able to learn Ukrainian. But also, I want people to understand this isn't about Ukraine for me. Mm -hmm. I'm not, it's cool. We can get all emotional about Ukraine, this and that, but... Ukraine has a lot of fucking answers to Ukrainian, you know, government, bureaucracy, military. Um, it's a corrupt, fucked up society. Mm -hmm. let, you know, so I'm not, I'm not a big f fan of uh, Ukraine. For its, uh, I care deeply about its people. Right. I care deeply about the Ukrainian soldiers uh, because they're human beings and I have a history of being a human being. Um, but nationality, the fucking government, no. Yeah. Um, but in fairness, this is about way more than Russia and Ukraine. So the people who come back to me and say, oh, you're getting too obsessed with this, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, I don't think you understand. And I know you can swallow this, you know, this mantra of, well, this is great. We're bleeding the Russians dry. And it's like... But there is, you've got to also understand the other dynamics in this of U.S. Uh, U.S. Uh, appearance of U.S. passivity right. is not helping us. Right. 
I mean, it really is not. Not only that, but yes, we are bleeding Russia dry, but it's Ukrainian blood. Like it's yeah. there are there yeah. are actually people so, who are so, bleeding. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So if you are weird enough to think that human life is is equal regardless of nationality, a very extraordinary point of view, you know. Right, (laughs) right. Never understood how anyone can oppose that point of view. But but anyway, so if you are weird enough to think that human life is all we call, yeah, people are still fucking paying for this. And by the way, it's it's a it may be an unsustainable cost if you would the Ukrainians are losing this number of guys. And so why not empower the Ukrainian military, flood them with attackums, right? You know. that's not enough. I mean, wholehearted intelligence support, wholehearted planning support. Right. Um, and the Ukrainians have to give up too. In, 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 in a way, it, it seems that it might be hurting us also, not just with the image of uh, passivity, but also, I don't know how much money we spent to you, sent to Ukraine so far, mm. but we could give them... A, that same amount of money, higher tech weapons or more money that, that, that if we just keep on like dragging this out, how much will, how much are we willing to spend? Is there truly no, well, I, I, yeah, I mean, that's a great question, but the problem is this, that we, we're throwing money at the problem for, you know, so what, what were the headlines? 37.4 billion dollar package to aid Ukraine. But what did that mean? It meant, excess defense articles it meant one i mean holy shit it meant dozens of 113 i mean we've just we've just watched a war in which in which t90s you know fairly high-tech military vehicles uh, armored vehicles tanks are totally destroyed without a chance of having fired a shot. And what do we do? We provide, we give the Ukrainians 113s, total fucking death traps. Um, we give them towed artillery, right? Mm-hmm. The obsolete. Right. M777s, oh my God, that's fucking awesome. Yeah, it is a great towed artillery piece. But when you're towing artillery and the Russians can bring counter artillery fire, counter battery fire down in four minutes. Right. You're providing. You're just giving them a fucking. You're giving them a bait, right? right? No, no, no. U.S. artillery battery can deploy, can displace in four minutes. You see what, see what I'm saying? It's like we're providing this shit, right? That that makes well, it more like vulnerable. We're, clear, we're, clearing we're unloading out stocks. We're unloading stocks, and we're like, holy shit! Look what we're doing for them. Yeah, it's like. We're either in or out. That's all I'm saying. So you're saying the U.S. should either shit or or get off the pot. Yeah. Let's fucking say, all right, we're going to get the, we're we're going to give you, um, we're going to flood you with attackums. uh, I mean, with the high mass platforms with attackums, 300 Mm -hmm. kilometers. You will agree not to hit Russia with those. Mm -hmm. NATO already has an understanding. The Ukrainians aren't going to bite the hand that feeds them. Mm Mm-hmm. But Crimea, yeah, go at it. Mm-hmm. Crimea is what they, that's why they want that range mm-hmm. to, to really pre- prep Crimea. So it's a game changer for them. So let's say that we gave Ukraine everything they needed and then uh, seven days from now, they push Russia back, the war's over. In your opinion, what becomes of Ukraine and are they our friend? Are they our ally now? 
but we've got a lot of work with Ukraine. So, first of all, we we have to convince them that they're an ally. Uh, right now, they're ambivalent. They are 100% sure of UK support because they understand what UK is giving them meets their requirements. You see what I'm saying? It's, uh -huh. We've got to take a an intelligent approach that actually will save us money, cause you know less resources, and convince the Ukrainians that we are truly an ally. Um, but we have to. It's a minor risk. The risk is, you know, what is the risk? Inciting Putin? Come on. Um, but it means a more circumspect, focused approach. What do you need? Specifically, what do you need? What do you need to do to the Russians that we can help you with? Not simply, here's, the, here's another 37.4 billion. It's the, the Norwegians uh, providing the NASAMs anti-air defense system and the uh, Germans with the RSK and, and the French with the Caesar self-propelled artillery. They are at least... We can criticize them all, um, but they are at least saying to the Ukrainians, what do you need and answering that request? We United States are not. Well, you must need this. Oh, we've got all this shit here. I think you need this. Right, right, right. Yeah. right, right. And the Ukrainians know. Really? And, you know, honestly, though, I mean, got to be honest, the Ukrainians, I'm like, what are you going to use all this shit for, the 113s? And they're saying... They're telling me, well, you know, right now we use our own personal vehicles to take guys to the front line. So now at least we have a better. But why not, you know, why not give them something that's really fucking yeah. worthwhile? Yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating. And, like, we appreciate because for me, like, this is one of the first, well, it's the second firsthand account that we've had on the show, I think, right? Um, but it didn't go this much into depth. It's the best. What he means is it's the best first-hand account from a guy whose uh, approaches are more sophisticated and debonair. And cultured. And, uh, yeah, yeah cultured. exactly. I mean, yeah. checks out. Yeah. You're British, of course. I know. <laughs> I, I, I want to ask you the way to the restroom, but I remember last time we did that with Jack. He was gone for an hour. I can yeah. help you. Uh, no, I don't want you to help. No, Jack. I'm going to come over here. I'm going to get a little personal. I'm going to unplug your microphone for you. No, actually, I don't need to go next. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sit it's, down. Yeah, yeah. It's, Jesus, um, Andrew. Yeah. No, it's me all okay. spun up for nothing. I know, but they. he said he has a, uh, what are those bags called? The, uh, like the catheters? Or like a yeah, catheter bag? What are they called? You want a Gatorade bottle to piss into? Yeah, it's fine. A yeah. Lafroy bottle? Yeah. So, um, why why the Mozart group? Like, you, you sound like a string quartet. Mm. I I did not like that. I did not like the uh, title. Actually, we we were trying to think. So so as this stuff was happening in Kiev in March, we realized that we had a cadre of trainers full time, and we realized that we had donor funding coming in. So we wanted to sustain our efforts as long as possible, and that's how you know we realized we needed to be a thing and an entity. Right. And so someone came up with the. Uh, idea of the Mozart group and it called on before I had a say and that's fine so are you all learning to play instruments now in case a, a performance <laughs> is requested no I I mean you know honestly the reason why 
I, I wasn't happy with the term was because we are nothing like the Mozart group, right? You know, when uh, I know in the end, I have to accept we're a private military company, <laughs> but we're an ethical private military company. So, why Jack's laughing. so the Mozart group, uh, there's a history of the name? No, not at all. Okay. Yeah, so some dude came up with a name, um, and it stuck, and everyone started using it. And then, you know, branding's a big thing, right? Yeah. No, it it, it really is. And I'm so, just so I'm all just of your, all of your listeners absolutely have to subscribe to our our merch store, right? The link is in the description. Uh, but for people who are listening and not watching, where can they find that that your your website? It's in the show notes too in the audio. Oh, it is. He, okay, he's awesome. Damn, he I, he, I know. Like, he he makes this show. I know. Show you show. you well, think you can well, trip me up? I've got D. Because you don't know your website. No, and <laughs> um, no, I'm like, shut the fuck up, David. Why don't you hit up some uh, questions from uh, yeah the uh, folks out there? And I'm I'm just kidding about the string quartet thing. Like it's it's a good name. It's like a nefarious name. If you guys grow and take over the world, it'll be like the Mozart group. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Do you think cannabis will be legalized in uh, New York? It is. It is, man. Oh, really? Have you been yeah. out on the street lately? Really? <laughs> I'm a big fan actually now of cannabis. Yeah. Jack so much- Jack isn't. Uh, too adverse to it either. Not as adverse as I used to be, especially on trips to Las Vegas. <laughs> no, I, mean, I think it's a very positive thing. Yeah, I do too. I, it, it's not great for me. Like I, I don't get a whole bunch out of it. But I'm not. I'm not opposed to it. There's, you know, I, I think that it's a great uh, thing to be legal. Well, so you're a pot smoking hippie now after all those yeah, years yeah. in the Marines. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. You need to grow your hair out and have a ponytail. No, no. Hawaiian shirt. But I think THC yeah. has positive aspects. Oh, absolutely. I mean, really does. I mean, I don't. Um, microdosing is the term. It's very difficult to microdose now because you build up a tolerance very quickly. So you've got to be circumspect about it. You know, you can't simply keep taking THC. And you have to keep take more and more. I mean, it's ultimately not going to have a good effect on your body. So what I'm told, and these are Marshall guys now who run AR, it's called the Hellman Growing Company. So you take, you microdose, right? You work out, Jack, so tomorrow you wake up, you take, you got your little bag of gummy bears that you went to uh, gifted curators here in, you know, wherever in New York. <laughs> that I got from Woodstock. Yeah. And you take, well, I mean, what do you take? Five grams, you know, five milligrams. Yeah, five is, is like yeah. more than enough for me. Yeah, with your coffee, right? And it, it makes you feel good, focused. You're not scattered. Uh, you, you have energy. But learning how to sustain that because you always give up something, right? You always lose something. Right. If you're getting something. Right. Uh, so how do you sustain that? And uh, then you have to, every third day, stop for 48 hours or whatever. Or mm-hmm. Anyway, anyway, the point is, though, what does it get to you? It gets you, um, unlike what we used to think from high school, because we're forgetting shit all the time because we overdid it, it gets you super focused. It gets you... Um, energy uh, gets you a very positive outlook it, without all the downsides of alcohol, right? Yeah. 
I haven't had that experience with it, and I know other people do, and I know that it's a great but, treatment. But you have for to look at it scientifically. You have to, you have to go to a, I don't know, pot administrator. <laughs> I don't know, pot dispenser. <laughs> no, I mean serious. No, Dave, because what you do is you roll up and you're like, you bogot the pong, and then you get the munchies, and you're like, that sucked. And watch but, Game of Thrones. What's yeah, wrong with that? I, know, but, I mean, what is wrong with that? But I, yeah, anyway, I think there's a better experience in store for you. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I hope so. Like I've, there are other things that I've tried that have, have had given me, that have given me a, a you know, uh, I don't want to say a euphoric feeling that have sort of, uh, increased that barrier between, you know, the, I don't want to say post-traumatic stress or whatever, sure. but, but, yeah, yeah. The, but, the, but the tension, yeah, yeah. but, uh, uh, like what, like what? Um, honestly, MDMA. Really? Yeah. Without, not like ecstasy, not with, with like amphetamines in it, just like MDMA, like creates that level. Um, THC actually, no matter what type I take, it generally makes me feel even more like it makes me feel heavy, but yeah. more alert. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And not, not alert in a good way. Really? Yeah. MDMA. Yeah. MDMA is, is what though? Uh, for the benefit of your distance, because of course, uh, Jack knows. It, I mean, it's commonly called ecstasy. Well, I think it's ecstasy when it has the amphetamine in it, and Somali when it's not. D, help me out here. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Oh, it's, you guys. <laughs> well, well, thank um, you. you can tell I'm part yeah. of the square. And, and that just for me that creates a very relaxed sort of euphoric feeling that that. And you get this here in New York. Well, not now, not with all the fentanyl that's getting mixed in with all really? the drugs. Yeah, I mean, we, they just had like three people in New York. Well, three people that were important enough to report on, let me say, yeah. that, because people are dying all the time. But um, from like co fentanyl and their cocaine, it's getting mixed in a lot of stuff. Yeah. Like, wow. It's it's not really safe to, to do anything here right now. Yeah. Well, anything that you don't know where it's coming from. But um, And then ketamine I had a really good effect with when, when I used that. And I know that they're using that in a lot of the post-traumatic uh, programs. Yeah, I, I, I haven't used any of that. Just, uh, just THC, and um, generally positive because I don't, you know, I don't go overboard with that. Have, have does it, do you find that it helps you? And I don't want to say relax because that seems like such a casual term, but like decompress. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Uh, but uh, strangely enough, it, it helps me concentrate too. Interesting. But I take very small, you know, I, I'm not like after a, a buzz. I'm, I take relatively small doses. So I work out what affects me and I take smaller doses than that. Um, and then and then I'll break for 48 hours. Yeah. So you say that now, the next time we have you on your fourth appearance on the show, you're going to have like a little sandwich baggie full of pills. That could be right. Well, yeah. But, you know, in the in the end, I think... I'm probably going to pay a price. No, uh, not for microdosing THC. No, 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 Jack, I'm being serious. So I'm probably, we all, we all pay a price for what we've gone through, right? So yeah. um, you, you try and minimize the cost. And so I would say, yeah, any self-medication, probably not good. But on balance, THC. It's not bad. It's, it's not bad. And it's given me probably a better feeling than. Yeah. It's I not don't like. I, know, I mean, it's a way better it's, it's solution. Great, yeah. Than, yeah, I mean, it's great getting 
lick it up with you guys. Yeah, it's right. great. But I you know, don't want to do that every day. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I yeah. know I'm not. I know I can walk home to my hotel. I'm not going to get ass raped by you guys. And, um, just my day's threats. But it's, you know. Threats? <laughs> what threats? No, that, those are uh, But those generally, are you know, I mean, it's like, <laughs> those are I mean, sweet it's, nothings. It, it's good experience because I'm with friends, but. You don't threaten don't, me with a good time. Yeah, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to get licking up too, too often. <laughs> same thing with anything. I mean, THC included, because it does, uh, you know, too much alters. I mean, it, it makes me sleep very well. A lot of positive aspects, mm. but I recognize too. Why would I want to be in an altered state? When, right. when we uh, we had Jim Morris on the show, who was a captain in uh, Special Forces captain in Vietnam, he talked to us about his experiences before any of the stuff we're talking about yeah. was even known. Yeah, he was messing around with LSD. As, really? As, yeah, as as a way to try to like get out of that 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 box that he he was in. Yeah, yeah. And Very um, and he did. He used it and had a mostly positive experience with it. But I remember him, him telling us it got to a certain point. I took everything I had and flushed it down the toilet. Like it was starting yeah. to get to that point where it was taking over my life. Right? Yeah. yeah. We've had a salmon she. She went through a the medical like, the medical program for yeah. um, with mushrooms. Yeah, yeah. I we, think I think ayahuasca. Uh, we've had people on who have done the stellate ganglion blocks. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I you, there's just it's very interesting because before any of well, not before any of this was studied, but after it was studied and then shelved by the government, um, and then you know you have the post Vietnam era, and you have all these veterans coming out. You know, turning to marijuana, you know, we talked to uh, my buddy Mike. He was on the show and he went to India and like spent a winter in a cave doing opium with with a with a sadhu, with a guru, you know. Mm. And, you know, they were all sort of looking for something. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think that it's to escape the world. I think it's to sort of to reconnect yeah. with the world. I, I, I think it's to make sense of the world. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good, uh, and I, I think, frankly, that I think that's all positive. I mean, you know, I'm an addictive. I know I have an addictive personality, uh -huh. and uh, but I would, frankly, you know, the experimentation I've done <laughs> with uh, THC or, uh, leaves me feeling far better than anything with alcohol. You know, and um, I. I, I, I've come to learn, okay, too much is not good because you learn, you lose sense of where you are and memory and all that. But how many, I mean, you guys as uh, former leaders, you know, how many guys do you have to bail out of jail who caused fights because they were high from marijuana, you know? Right. Can't think of any. Yeah, yeah it, it's, 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 it, it doesn't, yeah. It's strange that it became. Alcohol, alcohol is behind so many yeah. bad things that happen. Yeah. Marijuana, yeah, not so much. Reefer madness. Yeah, yeah reefer, it, I, I know. absolutely. I know, yeah, you don't get that, right? No. Reefer rage. <laughs> um, I actually have reefer madness. Um, All right, let's uh, hit which up Which is a movie here. from like the, what, 50s, the 50s or 60s? Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so let's see here. Danny, thank you very much. Uh, did Andrew or any other Ukrainians he trained encounter any members of Putin's private mercenaries known as the, the Wagner Group? 
Um, yeah. So, so we've always missed the Wagner group, fortunately. Um, they, they have been reported to break through, you know, Ukrainian lines in Donbass regularly and attack checkpoints or checkpoint Ooh, wow. attack groups trying to, you know, get through. Um, but no, we've, we haven't come into direct contact with them. Oh, what is that? This is uh, Buffalo Trace. Um, okay. Uh, Ian, thank you very much. Uh, question for the group. I've seen lots of Ukrainians, uh, uh, Ukrainian field interrogations of Russian soldiers. No abuse of prisoners, but video online. Is this okay under the Hague? Are there prescriptions against filming POWs? Yes, there are. And the, and the Ukrainians are in violation of... Um, the Hague Convention, they, they, there is a, I forget the exact phraseology, but it is, we, we looked at this closely and it's, uh, yeah, they, they should be no filming of, uh, the, the phrase, the, the terminology is bringing attention, blah, 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 to media. Um, and yes, the Ukrainians are violating that, you know, I, absolutely, there's, they, and and there are they're filming of a number of things that they're doing with uh, uh, POWs is violating law of law of armed conflict and it's not it's not obvious it's not like the Ukrainians are intentionally saying hey fuck you we're gonna but there is a an educational aspect of this that the United States probably needs to get involved in saying hey guys. This is, we understand you, you mean well, but these things are not palatable. You cannot do these things. Filming interrogations is one of them. Yeah. And uh, filming interrogations and then posting them on, you know, any, even, even if you have, even if you have the permission of the guy being interrogated, everyone knows is not, that's, we don't do that. Is, is that, uh, a challenge with working with what we could call like partisan forces, right? The, the, uh, you, right. is it, I think it's a challenge, very clearly a challenge with the nature of this war, the bitterness. Um, you know, you can say any war has bitterness, but this particular war has a tremendous amount of anger, bitterness between the Russians and the, uh, and the Ukrainians, there is no, you know, you just have to look at the rhetoric. There's, right. there's no common ground. There's, um, just, just absolute hatred and anger. So, my point here is, uh, a good friend of mine is a NATO lawyer. He's like a, you know, the SES level lawyers and head of their review of law of armed conflict, blah, blah, blah. And he said, hey, uh, NATO wants me to come into country. Can I embed with you guys? And I can teach classes, the Ukrainians, on law of armed conflict. And at me, as an American, I'm like, yeah, that sounds really cool. And then I was thinking about it, it's like, Butch, that is the worst fucking possible thing. Right. So we're not providing them with, with ATACMs. We're not giving them this, that. But we're bringing a dude in. We can't bring anyone else to to train them on anything in the country. Right. But bring a dude on telling them now, 
hey, we're going to teach you about the Laurent Vaughan conflict. Right, they right. They go, fuck you. You know, we've got Russians raping people and pillaging our villages and you, and this is the only support you want to provide us is telling us, be nice to them. Right. I'm not, I'm paraphrasing. Right. You know? I mean, right. of course I believe in the Laurent Vaughan conflict. Uh, of course, but, of course. But, um, but it's not like, it's not necessarily... When you have five we, days we, to train, we are, yeah. When we you have are five beyond, days, to, we yeah. are beyond that. Is what I'm saying. Right. Is we are, we as U.S. trainers, absolutely will distance ourselves as soon as anyone shows us a video of killing Russians prisoners. We're like, okay, that you have just fucking disqualified you and your whole unit for us being a touch point. Yeah, and we've been showing those videos plenty of times. So yeah. my point is. Um, it's a very, very dirty war, and the Ukrainians are committing plenty of violations of law and armed conflict, and we need to accept, not accept what they're doing, right? but call that out. right? Um, but the way to do it, it isn't say, hey, guys, we can't give you any other training. Right. Javelin we have an, training, we uh, have an EO class I know, right javelin yeah. training, <laughs> but we're going to tell you, you can't, guys, right. killing Russian prisoners is... right. And it's interesting because in the past, in you know, you know, you like Latin America or whatever, if U.S. Uh, forces or employees were involved with any force that committed, you know, war yeah. atrocities or, right or whatever, back, right? you have to, yeah, yeah you're yeah. done. Yeah, but we're obviously not going to pull our support from Ukraine at this. Well, point. I mean, yeah, I mean, no, I'm saying unit by unit, you can do that. Mm -hmm. um, and for the most part, I've got to tell you, no, they, they, they don't commit atrocities. Yeah, they, I, I don't. Yeah, they, I mean, the, atrocities the, the, the is a big word. The yeah. Units that we are working with are very professional in how they, yeah. you know, interrogate Russian prisoners. But yeah. we are. I want people to understand that we Mozart Group are. Very, there's no question of us going, oh, yeah, well, you know, that's the way it is. Yeah. It's like, as soon as we see a video of killing prisoners or anything like that, we're like, dudes, we're going to another unit. Yeah. You know. And and I need to, I need to retract that. Like I said, atrocities, and I was, you know, thinking about, like, the Contras and Sandinistas and stuff. But, you know, you're just talking, you're talking about the, you know, these violations. Oh, it's atrocities. No, yeah. I mean, it still is. I mean, you, you, you shouldn't kill you shouldn't kill dudes who, I mean, everyone knows who surrendered. I mean, um, and, that, and there, there was plenty of that. There was plenty of that. There's, there's, a, there's all kinds of atrocities to go around. It, it, and I, I mean, I imagine for a lot of the soldiers, and this doesn't justify it, it just gives you sort of empathy or, or insight in the situation. I imagine for a lot of the soldiers and a lot of the civilians that it's a very personal, like it's a very personal oh, war. Oh, hugely, yeah. So, so, Dave, think about the risk calculus. So think about what you and me and Jack, when we deployed our personal risk calculus, right? I, I don't know. I mean, I can't speak for you. And I never really sorted it out for myself, but I knew I wanted to generally to survive, but I didn't want to appear as a chicken, you know, as a coward. I didn't particularly want, I knew I wasn't going to get a medal. I wasn't that level of, you know, insane bravery. Um, but you want to do your job, right? You troll along. Um, for the Ukrainians, so it's a different, 
Right. They've got their families behind them. Right. And so their risk calculus says, I would die. Right. Rather than, I, w- I would die and I'm going to take as many of these fuckers with me. And you can understand that, right? You can right. Imagine literally your family is behind you. Right. You would, you, you no longer care about your survival, right? Right. Russians and you don't care there. about some concept of the Hague somewhere. No, off it's like, yeah. yeah, it's, I'm going to kill every motherfucker who wants to touch my family. That's right. how personal it becomes. Right. Um, and who can blame them? No. You know, I mean, uh, it, it's very difficult as an outsider to, you, you've got to, but we don't, we're very careful not to foster that hatred, not to build on it. We're very careful to emphasize that you're a professional soldier. Here's what you do. You know, you take prisoners, blah, blah, blah. We're very, you know, this, we, we, we explain this is all part of the same package, guys. You're professionals. You're soldiers. You don't, you, you don't do shit. If you do, you're just like the Russians. Right. You know? um, who knows how much of an influence we have on that regard. Right. But, uh, we're not blind to that mm-hmm. and uh we're very we're we're not ukrainians you know i've 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 done stuff to support the israelis and i've gone through the same stuff to my guys as read the name tape above your pocket i can't do that now with my guys we don't name this but you're not fucking israelis you're not ukrainians right. this is about something higher than that so let's not get too focused on our partners and start forgiving them for stuff that right. they don't need to be forgetful. Right. You can still do your job without putting them on some sort of yeah. pedestal. Pedestal, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we need to be cautious about that. And that's what I tell all of us. This isn't about Ukraine and Russia. We're not getting overly sentimental. It's not like, you know, the Spanish Civil War. But maybe it is like the Spanish Civil War because those guys who went to do you know, fight the Republicans were essentially saying, hey, this is a threat that is going to encompass the whole world soon. Right. And they were pressing, you know? Yeah. So maybe it's not a bad analogy. But my point is, it's not about Ukraine. We're not like, I happen to have, you know, Ukraine flag tied to my bag, but I'm not, oh my God, Ukraine's so awesome. No, because it's, I understand that there are plenty fucked up people running Ukraine. It's not about that. It's about global norms, right? Right, right. It's about Putin. It's like right. allowing it, dudes in the 21st century, like Putin, right. to do what they want to do. It's a just fight. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, T-Bar, thank you very much. Um, how should policy balance responding to the Russian invasion with its focus on China? Should the pivot to Asia pause to refocus on European defense? Hmm. I, I don't think we need to pause to fo- refocus. I think um, bolstering NATO the way you've done, I, you know, you've heard me. I would like to see more. I would like to see um, a more wholehearted U.S. support as far as provision of weapons and all that. But um, in answer to, you know, what, what he says, no, I, I think... I think by really emphasizing our role here, we're sending a very clear message to the Chinese about Taiwan. And I was, I was the, I was in Mar Four Pack. I 
was the plans officer for Taiwan. So I'm very familiar with their plan. And there are clear correlations. And I think that's the best way U.S. can say, hey, China, look what's happened to Russia. They become a international pariah. But again, it gets back to the fact that U.S. needs to support Ukraine more wholeheartedly with mm -hmm. weapons platforms. And then they can send that, that message. And I think it's a great message, right? You're right. Because China's always, always kind of edge forward of, yeah, you know, you know, so U.S. doesn't care that much. And you're going to have to, by the time we invade, you're going to have to deploy forces forward to basically take the country back. So there's always been this backdrop. I think this is a good, a great opportunity for the United States to say no. Questions? Um uh Last question. Uh, thank you, Artie. What are you guys' thoughts on the prevalence of commercial drones on the battlefield? Both sides seem to be making good use of them, and how does it affect the soldier marine psychologically? Uh, I mean, I don't have any experience with this, so... Andy no, it's all important. So drones are a game changer. Um, the U.S. military does not currently recognize this, you know, as far as... Uh, cultural acceptance at the squad level. They are a game changer in this sense that, you know, one of the, this is not a Klaus Witzian principle of warfare, but you're always trying to find standoff, right? Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, from medieval times, you want to be able to observe your enemy before he can see you, and then you want the ability to kill him mm -hmm. before he sees you. And so that is what drones give you. There are the other things that, that uh, you know, for instance, artillery gives you, if you have these things, the Ukrainians do not have these things. They do not have a, as I explained, a, a task organization that involves forward observers, blah, blah, blah. But they do understand drones. They understand how to use them. And so that's why I think those are game changers. They're not the DJIs they have. They need to bring in more advanced European and US drones that give them advanced um, strike and reconnaissance. The the DJI uh, Chinese drones that our federal agencies use, those DJI? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there are, I, I'm on, I, I understand there are packages to mitigate their vulnerabilities. I just, all I've heard is about their vulnerabilities. Um, Let's see here. We got, let me, uh, oh, George Phillips requested the show be conducted. Tapa. Sorry, George, we didn't see this prior. Otherwise, we would have. Uh, uh, next what, time. Re recorded what? <laughs> we conduct naked conducted yeah. topless. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, Jack, that's typically is, you know. You guys ever see one of these? Do you, so uh, Isaac's other question is do you, do you, uh, do you think you and Mozart, Mozart uh, might go to Taiwan next? And, and Yes, we want to go to Taiwan next because there's a businessman who has offered billions of dollars to train Taiwanese defense forces. We can do this. So let's talk about your, your profit model, as it were, for your business. Right now, you guys are kind of... Uh, you're you're 
surviving on like charity or, or donations. Wait, charity and, is a horrible term. Well, I mean donations. I, but uh, I'm, on that note, I'm passing over my pizza. Um, yeah, we are. So, so we right now we are uh, totally crowdsourced. You know, as far as resource, crowdsource, not charity. Yeah. They got it. No, no, no. I mean, totally. No, you're right. Yeah. Donor, donor supported organization. Um, to a point, yeah, we'd like to break out of that. So we are working a number of other lines of effort that will include revenue, but for the most part, we rely on donations. And you know what? There's no reason why we can't survive on that, right? If people care enough. No, I, absolutely. In fact, I, I'm sorry. I was I'm posting the link. I know it's down below, but I'm also putting it in the chat. Um, if you guys go to the Mozart Group uh, dot com, right? The Mozart Group dot com, uh, you can donate. I like send five dollars for you know that you would buy a coffee with. You know, uh, mm. you know, 15, if, 20. 20, um, if five thousand. If, if you're mm. if you're a money bags and and you fly a Ukrainian flag in your profile on social media. Send them a hundred or two hundred. Yeah. Like, like, get behind it and help these guys out. Also, or if you want to put Jack on the front line um, for a period of time, Russia can't handle that heat. I know. Uh, like that. Look, that's a that, magazines that's, and two MREs. That, I'll have this that, that, That's a that's a true escalation of force yeah. right there. Yeah. No, the president knows. You know, you got to be careful how you use me. Yeah. You know, yeah. once you the, let the that jack, guy loose, the Jack signal it's goes very up. Circumspect. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think it's time. And you guys are also looking for <laughs> EOD experts, right? Yeah. So if you or somebody you know is former EOD. Or, or, or just like any trainer, any trainer um, with emotional intelligence. So, yeah, any trainer with emotional intelligence. So if you're a drill instructor, then maybe not. You're no, excluded. I, yeah. <laughs> um, but reach out to these guys. And please, I mean, honestly... Uh, help them out, throw them a few bucks. Uh, you know, it's, it's not going to them. They're, they're, they're running the miracle mile, the Mozart mile. All right. Absolutely. And if you want to visit us, um, seriously, we can work out like, yeah, come and visit. I think Jack and I should make that plan. Yeah. I I have actually resisted, uh, because I don't really want to be a war tourist over there. But you're not a war tourist. You're, in a, you're a Mozart executive. <laughs> I like the way you phrase that. No, I mean, war tourist, no. We do not do war tourist. I know, I know you don't, but me going over there... No, it's fine. No, we're going to walk it. No, it's going to be cool. It'll be fine. Uh, Ask Kenny. Kenny does organizes all this stuff i would have to find some uh if there was an important story for me to report on there i, I would do it how can you say that it's not an important story with the important story look yeah, at the there. mozart group like write yeah. write a letter write write uh, the an atlantic, article the atlantic already covered no but write an article countering the atlantic yeah the atlantic called you guys mercenaries how, how or sol- soldiers of fortune or yeah well if uh yeah if anyone wants to buy that article men who played the pay the blood price Whatever it is, I don't know. Um, so I also want to remind people out there to check out our Patreon. Uh, the link's down in the description if you want to get access to these episodes ad-free. Uh, actually, both the video and the audio is going to be ad-free on the Patreon now. So I um, hope you guys will check that out and support the stream. 
Uh, we appreciate it, and that's why we're here. We got a new studio, way cooler. We got D. Things are way more professional than they were uh, in some of Andy's previous appearances on the show. Yeah, my shit salon. <laughs> also, buy Andy's book. You will Please. love it. Uh, you will love it. Uh, I promise. Oh. Um, and uh, throw a few bucks to the Mozart group. Hook go to um, go to our, our Twitter page or it's at Andy Milburn Eight. Um, also on uh, TikTok. No, seriously, we do good things. They do great things. So thanks for joining us tonight, guys. And uh, we'll be back on Friday with Daryl Blocker. He was the chief of Africa Division at CIA. Really excited to have him on the show. And um, we'll see you then. Andrew, thanks again for stopping by. We love you. No, it's well, awesome, when you man. Come in, man. And it was a great ending. So you're not going to get any more complaints about me taking my shirt off. It's on. Uh, complaints. Our revenues are going down after this. <laughs> I, I, I will get complaints that there's no male frontal nudity on this episode. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.